0: Spanier, welcome finally to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, it's been a long nine plus years since we first spoke about this case, and this is the first time we've had the opportunity to finally do something on the record. And I very much appreciate you taking the time to do so. What I would like to do here is to start at the end and then go back to the beginning. So you're speaking to us on October third. You are uh, still technically under house arrest, which hopefully is going to end, I believe tomorrow. And you've just gotten uh, out of a a two month jail sentence for a misdemeanor conviction that occurred uh, several years ago after being appealed for what felt like forever. So uh, the first question I wanna ask is, how the heck are you doing and how have you endured the last several months?
1: It's it's been tough. I mean, frankly, uh, being in the situation I was in, being uh, sent to prison for a crime you did not commit, (laughs) is it's very stressful. Uh, It it, it 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 takes its toll on you mentally and physically. Being incarcerated for two months, while most people would think that's not a long period of time, uh, it it felt like a long period of time, and frankly, it was a horrible experience, uh, but also very educational.
0: (laughs) What was the worst part of it?
1: I, I think the worst part was feeling the injustice of it all. Uh, Years and years of back and forth in in the courts uh, with with lawyers, uh, feeling that the system, the system of justice is broken in some ways, that this wasn't fair, uh, feeling the effects of the media frenzy that never really went away. There were a lot of things that came together to make it feel difficult and uh, a little depressing, but uh, at the same time, I learned a lot while I was incarcerated. I met about 30 people who I never in my life would likely have met before, uh, came to understand their experiences and their backgrounds, uh, what what they had been through in in their lives and uh you know in some ways, I became the i guess you'd say the jailhouse lawyer doctor therapist <laughs> uh i I was in a in a unique position
0: i have no doubt about that, and I can totally see you in that role and and that those those people in incarcerated with you are i'm sure very lucky to have you close. I'm curious. Most of them must have known who you were or your basic situation. What was their general reaction to you being there?
1: Uh, Absolutely everybody in the prison knew who I was, and I believe they knew I was arriving. I, I, I think the day before, they either were told or given the impression that that I was coming in and maybe even told to, uh, <laughs> to be on their best behavior. Uh, I mean, I, in so many ways, I, I stuck out like a sore thumb because <laughs> most of them were uh, high school educated or had GEDs. Uh, it's it very rare to find someone in there with a college degree or, or certainly you know, a Ph.D., I was eligible for work release, as they call it, so I was given, after my time in solitary confinement, I was given an orange and white striped uniform, whereas everyone else had a green and white striped uniform, so I, I looked very different. <laughs> Besides that, I was the oldest one there, and uh, there's no doubt that they all knew who I was. and. You know, at first, you had some of them who felt like they needed to keep their distance, and then there are others who were willing and wanted to become more engaged.
0: Was there a general sense that you didn't belong there for the the story that put you there?
1: Yes. Absolutely everybody uh, in there believed I did not belong there. They... They were very sympathetic with my situation from that standpoint. Uh, many of them, in my opinion, did not belong there either. Uh, and others said, yeah, I belong here. I, I did do something, and I understand why I'm here, but this is, this is wrong that you are here.
0: You mentioned you were in solitary confinement? For how long and, and why? I, I don't understand why you—what what, what was the story behind
1: that? Normally, uh, you have to spend the first two days, 48 hours, everybody, in solitary confinement, I think for two reasons. First of all, there's a required uh, tuberculosis test, which takes 48 hours uh, to be diagnosed and and cleared. Uh, But also, I think they start you in solitary confinement because it is a very unpleasant Experience, And they want you to know that if you goof up in any way while you're there, you will be sent back to what they call the hole. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in my case, I spent five full days in solitary confinement because I was put in at a time when uh, the coronavirus was, uh, was out there. And normally during the coronavirus, the protocol was 14 days in solitary confinement. Uh, but, in, but because I had been fully vaccinated and was able to prove the documentation of that, mine was shortened to five days.
0: Wow. Okay. This is way worse than even I anticipated uh, your experience to be. Um, now, y- as we speak, you're still under house arrest. You have an ankle bracelet, which you're hoping to get off I believe tomorrow, uh, yes. Um, and you're doing lots and lots of community service, so you're, you're you still really are very much under a sentence that is significant. But I have to uh, have you tell our listeners because it's so interesting, at least to me, and I think they will find it as well. Uh, tell us what you did last night.
1: Well, last night I uh, I watched the Penn State football game when we beat Indiana had a very good showing I I had uh, two friends and colleagues come over because I'm under house arrest I, I can't go out so I have had uh, people coming over to visit uh, Tim Curley comes over and watches the games with me and uh, uh, it's um, you know it, it, it's it's nice to have friends and colleagues and supporters. Uh, I've had quite a flow of them in and out of here, and uh, that's helped to keep my spirits up.
0: I just find that mind-blowing on so many levels when you told me that the other day that uh, Tim Curley, the former athletic director at Penn State, who also uh, did prison time because of being Uh, He pled guilty to a misdemeanor, never anticipated he was going to go uh, to prison, never should have gone to prison. But the the two of you are sitting there while you're under house arrest watching Penn State football on national television. I I mean, we could probably talk an hour just about that. But I have to say, Graham, uh, you're a much better man than I am that you, one, would would still be rooting or care about Penn State football or Penn State anything at this point. And, I'm, and I also am guessing that people would be startled that Tim Curley, your supposed co-conspirator in the greatest uh, cover-up of uh, sex abuse in college sports history, and someone who supposedly testified against you at your trial, would be hanging out watching Penn State football uh, with you. Uh, g- can you give us some insight into this?
1: Well, I, I can put it this way. you, I've told some people... You can take me out of Penn State, but you can't take Penn State out of me. I've been associated with Penn State since 1973, when I was hired to be a professor at the university. If you take the service of Tim Curley, Gary Schultz, Joe Paterno, and me, it's a combined service to the university of more than 160 years. We are people who loved the university, never really separated our personal lives from the work we did at the university. We, we were all in, and uh, since I left the presidency on uh, November 9th of 2011, I have been involved in raising tens of millions of dollars from donors to the university I visited I would say about seventy-five donors around the country at my own expense without any official title or authorization but these are people who invited me to visit them in their homes and the majority of them are people who said they were very unhappy with the university and the board of trustees for what happened to Joe Paterno and me and were never giving another penny to the university and I told them that I understood their position but if they think they're helping me or Joe by taking that position, they're not. Don't take it out on the students and on the future of the university because you're unhappy with certain decisions made by the governing board or how it was portrayed in the media or whatever. So I've continued to be loyal to Penn State. Uh, When I've been asked to give guest lectures, I've done it. When student groups have wanted to come over and meet with me, I've done it. Uh, I have adopted the practice which I was a little nervous about it first, but it's turned out to be a wonderful thing. I call the surviving spouse or child of every Penn State employee who I knew who has died to offer my condolences and to see if I can be helpful in any way. I have made scores of those calls over the last several years, and people are most appreciative in part because, The university doesn't have a lot of institutional memory right now. And key donors and alums and employees who may have retired some time ago or who died, nobody's reaching out to them. And these are people who played, you know, important roles uh, at at the university. I mean, they might have been an employee of the physical plant, a custodian, or they might have been a vice president. But uh, we had... A family at Penn State. We, we, we very much operated like the Penn State family. And it, it was putting people first and caring about people. And uh, it, 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 it's different than a corporation where you care about the shareholders and what the, what the stock price is this quarter. You If you're an alum of the university, that's with you for the rest of your life, no matter what. Uh, and so... That's how I continue to think about it, and how I've operated.
0: Well, I'll reiterate: you're a better man than me. Uh, the no matter what part of this uh, for me would have ended a long, long, long time ago if I was in your shoes or anyone involved in the story's shoes. And, and I'm, I'm not. Penn State has never done anything to me, and I, I got to tell you, I told you this on the phone the other day. One of my greatest rooting interests in sports is against anything Penn State does. Uh, That's how much I despise uh, the the university for what they did to you and to Joe Paterno (laughs) and to everybody else. And I get why you you have, as I said, you're a better man than me. Uh, I, I also think you left out a significant part of that narrative, which is you didn't just raise money for Penn State after you were no longer president and had been abandoned by the university. You gave your own money to the university in a pledge that you had made prior to this scandal breaking.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I'd say my wife and I, uh, over the course of time, probably donated about $2 million to the university. But in our, in the second capital campaign that I launched, we made a $1 million commitment and we were, uh, paying that, uh, over a period of five years and somewhere in the middle of that uh, is when I lost my job and uh, I felt that it was important that I honor that commitment. So yes, I, I continued to contribute to the university and, and I still do uh, for, you know, certain things that, that occur there that, that I, I feel attached to. And, and I have to tell you this, that uh, Sue Paterno uh, did the same thing and continues to. Sue, Sue and I made a pledge to each other after this all happened that, you know, we would continue to support the university, fulfill our commitments, help with fundraising. And, you know, by the way, she she's just been a, a, such a good friend and a wonderful supporter of mine. We... We talk often, and she should get a tremendous amount of credit for how she is stuck with the university and uh, all that she has done and continues to do.
0: Well, we'll talk about Sue and everything else that was involved in this case. But before we start to get into the details, I will just say, obviously, Graham, that everything you've done for the university uh, after you were no longer president— has to be motivated by deep guilt you have for having orchestrated this massive uh, uh, cover-up of sexual abuse. That's o- that's obviously the only conclusion anyone can come to.
1: <laughs> well, uh, I've never really thought about it in those terms, or uh, probably nobody else would uh, put it <laughs> that way, except for you. What, what, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, uh, I'm, I mean, I'm, I know it's, in cheek, but um, yeah, it's you know it, it's so hard to have anyone think that you're guilty of someone when when you know yourself the truth. And uh, you know, you, you asked earlier about about Tim Curley. Well, Tim Curley and Gary Schultz and I worked together every day for 16 years, for more than 16 years. And I've known them both a little longer than that. But when you spend the kind of time we did together making tough decisions, uh, dealing with budgets, dealing with personnel matters, and by the way, some of them difficult personnel matters, uh, and being in the limelight, being in the news, you get to know people very, very well. Tim and Gary are probably number one and number two of all the people I've known in terms of honesty and integrity, and I don't even know what order I put them in. But, you know, when when you're open and honest and talking with someone every day and you know what their values are, uh, I know who these people are, and, you know, what we've been through together, and we, we all know what the truth is. Um, of course, we—I I would still be friends with both of them. Of, of course, I would. You don't—you don't abandon people uh, just because you've been dragged through things together. And of course, when they when they took this plea bra- bargain under, you know, some level of coercion, I think uh, I at one level, um, and they were required to testify at my trial, it was often portrayed as they're testifying against me. That's the common Mm -hmm. language that people use, because they were called as prosecution witnesses. But Mm -hmm. the fact is, they got on the witness stand, and to the best of their ability, they told the truth. Uh, They didn't say anything that was negative about me or that contradicted uh, what I have said but they were punished for telling the truth
0: they yeah the, sent- the prosecution was not happy with either of them uh, and, and especially Tim Curley so oh
1: they they came down hard on them and uh, uh, you know I, I just it's very unfortunate that they were treated that way
0: all right well and I think one of the more interesting things that you've said a lot of interesting things already uh, but maybe the most important point you made was about the the tenure that you Joe Paterno Tim Curley and Gary Schultz had in over 160 years of intense as you said you know you get to know who people are in the jobs that you had very very quickly and over 160 years of service meant absolutely nothing and was wiped out in literally two or three days. Uh, in in this massive media firestorm, which we're going to get to shortly. So with with that said, let's go back to what I perceive as the very, very beginning of this story for you. And this is something that we talked about on the podcast in a way that no one else could because I, I personally believe that I inadvertently was in a position to figure out why this was way more significant to the broader picture of this whole thing than it would originally seem. And what I'm referring to is an email that you got in late 2010 from a newspaper reporter asking you a question about whether or not you were aware of an allegation made against Jerry Sandusky while he was still at Penn State. So we're talking about in 2010. This is way before the public has heard about this story. And you get this this email. Can can you go back and, and, uh, and, to the best of your recollection, and I don't know if you have the email there with you, but can can you give us the story of what happens when you get that email and how you respond to it?
1: Yes. I I can because, uh, you know, I've made a record of it. Uh, On September 16th of 2010, Jan Murphy of the Harrisburg Patriot News emailed me. uh, She was the reporter there who covered higher education. I I knew her well because she reported on me all the time. Uh, She emailed me with this question I'm quoting. Are you aware of any police investigation into Jerry Sandusky for suspected criminal activity that occurred while he was a Penn State employee. Now, I wrote back to her saying no. I had no idea what she was fishing for, but my curiosity was elevated, so I asked her if she could tell me more, and she didn't. I never heard another word from her. Uh, I asked around our staff to see if someone, anyone, had an idea about her inquiry, and no one did. Uh, now, many reporters would fish for stories each year, so we didn't make much of this particular inquiry there. And then there were no other media inquiries for more than half a year to follow. So it was a pretty isolated communication. And she didn't even answer me because I was eager to hear more. What, what do you mean? What are you asking about?
0: Now, as you know, Graham, I find the story surrounding that email to be so significant on so many different levels. You've already alluded to one of them, which is you asked a local reporter after telling her you've never heard of this. Tell me more, basically. And you never hear back from them. Now that is astonishing uh, uh, on uh, in many many ways but the substance of that email is so important because it refers to when Jerry Sandusky was an employee at Penn State and at that point you had had only been directly involved in a and i wouldn't even call it now an allegation but an episode involving mike mcquery in the year of 2001 as far as you knew it to be um and uh, and that was only via emails and not any meetings and that was after underline after jerry sandusky had left penn state when you got the email did you even have any recollection of the McQuery I'll call it an episode at this point uh and did you connect that at all to the email or ha- or had you even just forgotten about the whole McQuarrie thing because now we're talking uh, nine years later so so what can you piece together when you when you got and read that email
1: uh I don't think it registered much one way or another I mean I I, I didn't I just didn't know what she was talking about, and that's why I asked uh, people in our uh, university relations, public information area, what do you think this is about? I mean, oftentimes reporters called them, and uh, although I was known that I would answer all emails directly and in reporter inquiries, I, I, I didn't connect it to anything, and I, I hadn't heard anything uh, for, a, you know, about a decade from that uh, one brief, I call it a heads-up meeting with Tim Curley and Gary Schultz. That 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 was it. I hadn't heard anything. All
0: right, so that's heard,
1: really heard Sandusky's name for a decade. And by the way, you, you mentioned Mike McQuerey. Let let me just clarify something. I did not know until Monday night. That's true. Right. Of. Of uh, in two th- of, uh, would have been November seventh of two thousand eleven that Mike McQueary was the athletic department employee who gave that initial report of seeing something indirectly and around a corner uh, that made him uncomfortable. in in a locker room facility. I I, Right. That's an important point. Thank thank you for
0: mentioning that because and I shouldn't have I I was trying to make this as simple as possible because people obviously uh, relate that now to the quote quote unquote Mike McQuery episode, but that is an important point. That when you had these email these now infamous email exchanges with with Tim and Gary, you didn't even know that it was Mike McQuery who had had made the report of whatever it is that, uh, he witnessed or heard. Um, but, but getting back to your reaction to the email, it, those two things did not connect in your mind. And, um, and I'm guessing I, obviously it's difficult to piece it together all these years later, but did they not connect in your mind because what we now think of as the McQuery report was such a small deal that it didn't, Make a large enough imprint on your mind for it to immediately come up when you got that email.
1: I, I think that's a fair statement, but remember, her email said, uh, "Are you aware of a police investigation for suspected criminal activity?" Well, no. <laughs> I had no idea right. there was anything along those lines, and. Even at, at the time I got this email, if if I remembered that that one uh, that that one interaction a decade or so earlier, it it had it, there was nothing that would suggest criminal activity or police or uh, anything that right. that uh, would have sent off a, alarm bells. Right. I do remember when I touched Awkward about it. Like, why would I get an email like this? What on earth could she be fishing for? I I was I was baffled by it, which is why I asked around. Like, has anybody else heard anything or gotten an email? Is there something going on that I don't know about and nobody knew anything?
0: And what I now believe happened, and I, you obviously, I would like you to tell me if you agree with this assessment. But but here's piecing this all together now, all these years later. What I believe happened was that her, that reporter's colleague, David Jones, had learned a rumor not about the so-called Mike McQuarrie episode, but about what we now know to be the quote-unquote 1998 episode, which did occur while Jerry Sandusky was an employee at Penn State and which did involve a police investigation and which was ultimately determined to be unfounded by the district attorney uh, at the time and that David Jones told Scott Paterno about this at exactly this same time period and later, both he and Scott, piecing together their public statements, I strongly believe misinterpreted this rumor once the Mike McQuarrie episode, a couple months later, becomes known to them because uh, Joe Paterno and Tim and Gary uh, get called into the grand jury, thus giving the Mike McQuarrie episode far more magnitude in their perceptions because they think that they were leaked this before it ever became public and that this was known for a long period of time. Uh, and then what happens is that David Jones, because you and he had had a dust up over the the Rashard Casey controversy, which had occurred uh, prior to this, ironically, just before, prior to the whole uh, Mike McQuarrie situation, although we didn't put all that together at this time. Uh, he has his colleague email you because he's not particularly, in my opinion, he was actually afraid of you. Uh, and so he has someone who deals with you regularly email you this and you email back saying, first I've ever heard of it, tell me more. And they, they don't have any more information. So at that time, they just drop it. Uh, what do you make of that assessment of of what actually think, transpired here?
1: I think what you have just described, uh, is is certainly plausible, and the parts of it that I have pieced together uh, suggest that it's, it's accurate. I, I don't know all of the, the pieces of it that you've mentioned, but of those pieces I, I am familiar with, I think you have it right.
0: And so the most important part of this is they have found out about a rumor involving 1998 and they fee- they ask for your reaction to this and th- and you at that time i mean i'm guessing when you don't get an email response you're thinking well okay i guess that's over with right
1: yeah yeah i never heard anything for for months to come and and what what we now know i i, I don't know if, if you're familiar with these details but what i now know is that uh, I am. I'm going to say 99% certain that I I did not know about the 1998 episode, if you want to call it that, uh, until uh, Tim purley and Barry Schultz were charged in uh, in 2011. Now louis free and and uh prosecutors assumed I knew something. I knew that at least there was an investigation uh into Jerry Sandusky in nineteen ninety eight and they they pointed to two emails I was copied on right uh, but the but louis free and the university and the prosecutors withheld from disclosure to me and my attorneys for a considerable period of time my calendars uh, from that era. And what what we now know is that uh, Tim Curley and Gary Schultz and I didn't overlap at the university for about two months during that time. I was on a a trade mission with Governor Tom Ridge uh, to uh, overseas for uh, a period of time. Uh, I was in the uh, United Kingdom visiting our partners in the Worldwide Universities Network. Uh, I returned to the university for just a matter of hours to sleep one night and then was off to Washington D.C. for meetings, and this was before Blackberries and right. I- iPhones were invented. Uh, right. You didn't have any access to email or communications while you were traveling overseas. Uh, I was on the move constantly, and uh, I'm not sure I ever saw those two emails. I was copied on them. This was in a, in, in an era where. When someone sent you an email, they got an electronic response saying that you were out of the country and wouldn't have a chance to look at emails. And if it was an emergency, contact, you know, at that time, I think Rod Erickson, the executive vice president and provost, or contact the office of the president for assistance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I never. I have no recollection of knowing anything about 1998 uh, until we get more into the modern era. Right,
2: right.
0: And Uh, and I'm glad you mentioned that, and I was going to get into that uh, a little bit later on, but you've taken care of it now. But this is actually a pretty good opportunity to maybe broaden that point. Uh, Yes, it's absolutely insane that because you were CC'd on a couple of emails in in 1998, while you were overseas, that somehow this meant you had intimate knowledge of an investigation uh, that was determined to be unfounded against Jerry Sandusky. But there's a larger issue, Graham, that maybe you could, for you know, briefly touch on. You're the president of Penn State University, which. Being the president of any university is a massive job, but Penn State is a humongous place. You're basically the mayor of a large city. So how, I mean, it's, it's, is it, am I right to perceive it to be absolutely insane that you would have intimate knowledge of anybody being investigated in something that was determined to be unfounded by the police?
1: Well, I, I think that's a an accurate observation. Uh, I I was the kind of university president who tried to have my finger on the pulse of the university. I was accessible. I answered all my email. I I got maybe twenty five thousand emails a year. Uh, I I was connected. But the Penn State we wrote when I was president, we were writing 48,000 paychecks a month. Uh, we operated 142 locations. We had 25,000 acres of land, 1,700 buildings, and we had approaching 100,000 students. So on any given day, somebody would do something stupid. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a constant flow of things, and some would come to your attention, but not most of them. We had a police department that had, oh, at least 2,000 incident reports a year. Uh, I never, uh, my uh, approach to handling police matters was the president should not be involved. The, the hands off. We had a police department with more than a hundred employees. Let them do their jobs. It, it's not. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's it's not my expertise. And the last thing I, I would want anybody to think is if there's a police matter, drag the president in, and maybe he'll do something with it. That that's not right. Bef-
0: uh, be- so, before there's even an adjudication, before there's even a charge, forget about a trial. I mean, it just, it's. I, I remember.
1: When I had my uh, my grand jury testimony and the one meeting with uh, the Attorney General's folks before that, uh, and Frank Fina was the person doing the questioning, uh, one of his questions was, did you know the hours of the Lash building? And I thought it was a, a naive question. He didn't understand what the university's like, because if we have 1,700 buildings, they all have different hours, varying security systems. Some of them are open 24 hours a day. We're a public university. it's You know, the buildings are open. How am I going to know the hours in a particular building? Then he demanded to know at one point uh, my awareness of crimes being done at the university. So, well, you know... Let's, he said, let, let's take the last 24 months. How many police matters were brought to your attention? And I said, well, in the last 24 months, I think two. One was a student who died. I needed to know that so I could be in touch with the family. And another was a potential terrorist uh, on one of our campuses that the uh, mm. FBI needed to bring to my attention.
2: Right. Uh, those
1: were the two that I recalled. <laughs>
0: Well, that makes sense.
1: All right, so the other four thousand, I don't think I became aware of.
0: Gee, I can't imagine why. All right, so uh, all right, so you get this email, you respond to it, they never follow up, which I find astonishing. Uh, By the way, I find that astonishing, even if none of this had ever occurred the way we now know it over the last uh, ten years, Uh, and and then not long after that, things start happening. In, in a pretty dramatic fashion. Uh, eventually, uh, all of you get called in, in front of the grand jury. And um, and this is where things, it's not obviously public yet. The grand jury is supposed to be uh, totally secret. That would eventually uh, become public uh, in ways that were very important to, and I believe detrimental to the, uh, the justice system in this case. But take us through those next Few months, I realize that there's a lot of important detail and anything that is important, I want you to talk about. But, but this is where we get into, um, you know, all sorts of things that would eventually set up problems going forward. So, when you go, just give us a big picture, Graham, from your perspective over what happens over those next few months when everybody gets called into the grand jury.
1: Well, in uh, I guess I would start at the end of very end of December uh, Cynthia Baldwin uh, came to see me and said that now,
0: let's let's set up who Cynthia Baldwin is for those who don't remember Cynthia Baldwin is, is Baldwin the Penn, at Penn State that
1: time was the general counsel of the university she was on what was to be a rather short-term appointment. As we transitioned, uh, at the request of the board of trustees, from a external system of a general counsel to uh, mm-hmm. having an in in-house general counsel.
0: Right. Okay. And so she.
1: And sh- so at the end of uh, December, she came and told me that there was a grand jury. They were looking at. They were talking about Jerry Sandusky. She didn't know. didn't tell me what the subject was, but that they wanted to, uh, that they had subpoenaed Joe Paterno, Tim Curley, and Gary Schultz, uh, and that she would represent them uh, at the grand jury. Uh, A few days later, she came to me, uh, I think it, I I might have to double-check it, but I think it was maybe on January 6th, and said, I will be representing Tim Curley and Gary Schultz in a few days, but Joe Paterno wants his own legal counsel. And she seemed upset about that, and I said, well, why? And she said, well, it's due to the interference of his son, Scott, and she shrugged her shoulders and said, you know... It's his right to have somebody other than me. Uh, So the next I heard was when she came to see me sometime after that. She did not tell me anything about the grand jury appearances or testimony, Uh, and she said they wanted to talk to members of the football staff, the assistant coaches, and she was going to sit in on those meetings. This would be in mid-February or so. Uh, She did not... Uh, tell me anything about those discussions either. And, you know, frankly, I didn't ask because uh, I I knew that uh, I I shouldn't interfere. I I just knew it was not not something to to press her on. Now, she, over the next few months, would come to my office and occasionally I I would say, you know, what's happening? (laughs) And she would say, there's nothing there. They're on their third or fourth grand jury, and there's nothing there. She said it with a certain tone in her voice, like this: "There's nothing there." <laughs> so uh, it doesn't involve the university, she said, and and she said, by the way, I've told the grand jury, I've told the attorney general's folks that they are not going to subpoena the president of Penn State. And I said to her, well, Cynthia i would be happy to go voluntarily because i do have this one recollection of a discussion many years ago and uh, you know i'd be happy to tell them what what i recall well on march 8th i think it was of 2011 uh she came to me and said well they do want to talk to you uh it was the same day that the governor in his first major action, the new governor, Tom Corbett, a former attorney general, uh, he released his budget proposal for Penn State. Uh, it was it, What he was proposing was the, the single largest cut in the history of American higher education, a 52.4% cut in our appropriation. Uh, it was the same day that Janelle Eshbach called Cynthia Baldwin and said, we want to meet with Spanier in the state college attorney general's office. And I had that meeting.
0: Now, hold on a second, and, now, now, uh, Grant, Grant, let me stop you there for a second. Now, you know, obviously there, there are coincidences and then there are things that aren't really coincidences. Uh, knowing what you now know, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, do you believe that, that that those series of events that you just described were coincidental, or do you believe that this was part of Governor Corbett's uh, attempt to try to, to get at you because of this battle that you're going to have or are already having over education funding?
1: Uh, you know, in, with the benefit of hindsight, it's hard to believe it's a coincidence. I, I have no... Evidence to suggest otherwise, but it's pretty remarkable that it all unfolded simultaneously. Uh, so but I at the time, that didn't occur to me at all right uh, and, and what is your
0: level of urgency at this time? I mean, you're being told, and I think it's incredibly important that people let's underline Cynthia Baldwin telling you there's nothing there, emphatically telling you there's nothing there that's important. From a couple of perspectives, it's important from the standpoint of uh, you know your level of urgency. It's important from the standpoint of the the university's potential culpability here, and it's also significant in that it's an evaluation of the case against Jerry Sandusky himself. Would you would you agree with all of that?
1: I think so. I I had no sense of urgency for a couple of reasons. One is uh, they seem to be very respectful of my Schedule. They gave me, I think, five different dates they could meet with me. Uh, when they called me eventually the following month to go to the grand jury, uh, they, you know, met me, as a state trooper, I think, or a, uh, an investigator for the Office of Attorney General, met me kind of in the basement of the, of the building at Strawberry Square and brought me up because uh, they wanted to avoid, I guess, any public awkwardness. Uh, I thought I was there voluntarily. I did not, I now know I was subpoenaed, but Cynthia Baldwin was not straight with me. She did not tell me I had been subpoenaed. And and it, it took, I don't know, a year or two later for us to even get a copy of the subpoena. Uh, we were stonewalled on that by, again, by the university and by the attorney general's folks, uh, but it turns out my new lawyers were right that i was subpoenaed because everybody is subpoenaed if they go to the grand jury i didn't know anything about grand juries i didn't know what they were cynthia baldwin gave me no preparation she didn't explain anything in that first meeting with the attorney general i i heard something from frank fina which frankly stunned me he he said,
0: And Frank Fina was the main prosecutor in this case, just for yeah, people to remember. He
1: said, Dr. Spanier, are you supportive of sodomy? And I had to pause for a moment and say, Did I hear him right? What on earth is he talking about? I said to him, This is the first I've heard of what this could be about. I, have no, I had no idea. I thought it was maybe a, like a prosecutorial trick where they throw something outlandish out to see what your reaction is. Uh, I, I was very surprised to hear that, but, but then he proceeded to ask me some other questions that seemed very prurient in nature. Uh, if a faculty member was having sex with a student... Would I know about that uh, as president? If, if a, uh, an employee of the university was going into a dorm room and uh, having uh, sex with a student, would I know about that? Uh, was I uh, aware of that? Uh, he, he asked me other questions, that, which seemed very strange to me. But again, at, at that point, I had no idea what they were pursuing, what, what you know, what might be on their mind.
0: So after you testify, um, and, and I'm, I'm assuming there's, I mean, I shouldn't assume, is there communication between you and Tim and Gary and Joe at this point about the fact that you've all testified in front of the grand jury?
1: None whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were all told that Grand juries uh, are secret and there should be no communication. And Tim and Gary and I are always people who <laughs> follow the rules, right. obey the law. We never spoke about it once, ever. And I never had a conversation with Joe Paterno about any of this, uh, ever. I never spoke to Joe Paterno. Never spoke to Mike Query, Never spoke to Jerry Sandusky. Uh, in, in fact, I only really had one conversation with Jerry Sandusky in my entire life. I mean, uh, you know, early on, the media had this one picture of us at, at, at some charity event. Right. I, I was, and it was probably reproduced a thousand times. We were standing together somewhere, and, you know, as if we were joined at the hip, but I only ever had one conversation with
0: them. And and by the way, to be clear, that was well after the so-called McQuarrie episode, and that was about whether or not Penn State was going to add a football program at one of your satellite campuses, correct?
1: Uh, I think it was before the so-called McQuarrie episode, but it was after— he retired. Uh, it, it was somewhere, I, I would guess, in the late 1990s, when it was clear that he was no longer coaching, uh, and the what we now call chancellor of our Altoona campus wanted to start a Division II, an NCAA Division II football program. And was suggesting that Jerry Sandusky could coach it. Uh, I thought it was enough to have one football team at Penn State. Uh, I didn't warm up to the idea, but uh, and and we, we studied it, uh, you know, whether we could pull it off with financial uh, gifts, uh, philanthropy. and we, we concluded. We couldn't. But as a courtesy, I I met with the chancellor and with Jerry uh, and maybe Tim Curley was there, too. I can't remember. Uh, But we had that one discussion uh, just as a courtesy uh, about their interest in doing it. That's the only time I ever met with Jerry Sandusky.
0: For the record, I'm, I'm pretty certain that was after the McQuarrie episode, if only because obviously Jerry retires and, 1999 and he's still up for the Virginia head coaching job uh when the McQuarrie episode occurs so I don't I don't think Jerry would have been interested in coaching division two at Altoona until uh a little bit after that but it's not that that significant but just just for the record um
1: I I can't pinpoint the date if if I had those calendars now you know I they were all on paper at the time so it wouldn't be right like Pushing okay. Them easily electronically, but we could probably find out when that that I, meeting.
0: I, it's not that important. So, so let's go along the timeline here. So, um, so I'm assuming that Frank Fina's uh, question must have elevated your your uh, urgency a little bit, right? Um, but you're but you're still not at this point thinking that this is going to end up anything close to what it ends up being, right? Is that a a correct assessment?
1: Because the only person who really was monitoring all of this was Cynthia Baldwin, who assured me that it had nothing to do with the university and there wasn't an issue there. Uh, Nevertheless, the same day that I testified before the grand jury... Uh, that afternoon, as soon as I got back to my office, I called the chairman of the Board of Trustees to inform him about it, and we set up a call with Cynthia Baldwin uh, on that Saturday uh, to, uh, to brief him. And, uh, and I felt it was important that we brief the entire Board of Trustees, and he agreed uh, in the, at our next meeting, uh, and Cynthia Baldwin was to prepare a briefing for the trustees. Uh, so that occurred at, at the uh, early May meeting of uh, 2011. And um,
0: and of course, at that point, Graham Sarah, Sarah Ganim has already reported about the existence of the grand jury in the local paper, so people are aware of this. But it's but it's. It's important to point out in retrospect or in hindsight since this is that's the name of this uh, podcast that that it's really not a huge deal uh, even in state college at this point despite the Gannam article is is that a, a fair assessment
1: Yes it is uh, there's only one person uh only one person who contacted me after the Gannam article that was uh David Jones, a different David Jones, the one who uh, had worked for the New York Times, uh, and it was a member of our board of trustees. And he said, you know, I've read this story. Can you tell me what's going on? And I said, yes, I'm going to ask Cynthia Baldwin to call you and give you a briefing as a trustee. uh, You know, she can tell you what she can tell you. And he wrote back and said, no, that's okay. I'll wait for the Board of Trustees meeting in in May. Uh, And uh, he was briefed then along with everyone else.
0: And when you do the briefing in May of 2011 to the Board of Trustees, this is the same people who in just a few months are going to, you know, burn the whole house down over this. Uh, What was their level of urgency when you told them about this?
1: Uh, There was... No level of urgency. Uh, Cynthia gave the briefing. Uh, It was not brief. I mean, it was a a full briefing of what I assume she knew and could tell them at that point. Uh, She asked if there were any questions. There weren't any. Uh, I was now moving into uh, the executive session that they have with the president only, so the uh, Cynthia and the other vice presidents and staff left and I asked them again do you have any questions and there were none so uh, it, it didn't feel like there was much urgency at that point and then at subsequent meetings that I would have with the leadership of the board uh, in July and September uh, uh one or another trustee would ask, uh, you know, is, is there anything new? And to the best of my knowledge, there wasn't, because Cynthia Baldwin had told me there's nothing new. <laughs> so, uh, it, you know, it came up. I kept, kept the leaders of the board in the loop, but uh, there really wasn't much to report, and I, I didn't know what was brewing. I had no idea.
0: Now, you know, from when I hear you say that, a couple of things come to my mind, Graham. And, and one of them is, let's think about who the members of this board of trustees are. Um, there are people, obviously, who know Penn State exceedingly well. M- most of them know Joe Paterno very well. They know you very well. Many of them still remember Jerry Sandusky very well and probably know him personally. And yet, even when hearing that there's this grand jury investigation that's been reported in the paper, there's no level of urge, literally zero level of urgency. Doesn't that, at least to me, it does. I'm I'm wondering if you have the same reaction that if there was something there, these are people who would have their alarm bells going off because they would be putting together pieces of their own experiences, maybe their own suspicions. And if there was any suspicion, it would come up because these are people who are literally uh, given the job of protecting Penn State University. Do you see where I'm going with that?
1: I do. Um, And, you know, as I look back on it now, I realize that uh, many of many of these trustees had been donors to the second mile, right. Uh, m- many of them, probably most of them <laughs> knew Jerry Sandusky better than I did. Uh, some of them were board members uh, on the second mile. Um, and it's quite possible that some of them actually knew, I didn't know this until more recently, that the second mile had distanced itself from Jerry Sandusky some years earlier, uh, and they, they had to have known, I, I, that's probably too strong, they might have known, some of them, that there was trouble brewing, but they never brought it to my attention, or maybe they didn't think it had anything to do with the university, and therefore it was irrelevant to bring it mm. to my attention but i i do have to wonder if some of them had more knowledge than i had
0: but yet there was no urgency i mean it let's you know to me that's in- incredibly significant on a, on a number of levels and obviously one of those levels is what would end up occurring just a few minute a few months later with regard uh, to you and to joe paterno now you you said something um which, which to me is uh, thematic or emblematic of, of so much that went wrong here, where, where you and Joe and Tim and Gary are following the rules by not speaking to each other. And, right. and in my strong opinion, while that was obviously you know, what you're supposed to do legally, that's what you were told, this put you at an incredible disadvantage. And one of the disadvantages is, and you've already kind of alluded to it, is that Joe Paterno is being represented uh, by other counsel, including his his son, Scott Paterno, and, um, and he is actually being interviewed uh, by the police, again, after his grand jury testimony. Uh, this would have been in October of 2011 you have no knowledge of this no one has any knowledge of this in fact no one no one knew about this even when the story broke until uh, many years later where uh, he gives an interview being far more declarative in backing up what is perceived to be Mike McQuerry's version of events here than he even was during his grand jury testimony and it is my opinion that that was the moment that when they had Joe Paterno, obviously the most respected man in the, in the state, backing up Mike McQuery in a far more dramatic and declarative fashion than he did so even in the grand jury, that they finally felt like they had enough after this three-year investigation of Jerry Sandusky to go ahead and arrest him and then we'll get to why they indict uh, Tim and Gary alongside because I I think that's paramount here and and understanding the big picture but you among others are completely in the dark that this is happening partially because you're following the rules uh, what do you make of my assessment there
1: uh well, you're right that I was in the dark and I was following the rules, and uh, I suspect that Cynthia Baldwin knew more than she was telling me. But, uh, and I think that's unfortunate that she wasn't communicating more more openly. Uh, no, I I had no knowledge that there was any additional interviews with. With Joe Paterno, or you know, of course, I didn't know what was being said.
0: Uh, I guess where I'm going with this, Graham, is there's there's obviously the, the the legal elements, there's the political elements, and then there's the element of how and why did this all happen? And um, and maybe this is you know an aside, but it's an important one in my mind. I've always believed that if the top Dozen people in this story had been in a room together before it broke publicly, and had had uh, articulated their experiences, and everyone understood where they were coming from. That this whole thing could have been averted uh, fairly easily, and and I and I during the podcast I I've used the the old uh, attributed to Ben Franklin. Saying that you know we shall all hang together, or we will surely hang separately, and uh, he meant that about the American Revolution. But to me, he might as well have been talking about what happened at Penn State, uh, with the benefit of hindsight. Well, I think
1: you make a good point. Had had we all known how this was going to play out, or what? The possibilities of it playing out were, uh, it, it we could have managed it better and gotten out in front of it. But you know, as things began to unfold in early November of that year of 2011, uh, Joe Paterno and I were both put under gag orders. That just to use that term <laughs> loosely. Uh, you know we 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 were told that the board was going to manage this, and uh I had told the board everything I knew in an emergency meeting two emergency meetings we had over over that weekend as things were unfolding and
0: uh well, let me i i I don't want to get ahead of ourselves because we're going to get there in a minute but yeah but but one last thing on 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 the Joe Paterno aspect of this. I mean, to me, this story has always, uh, in its essence, uh, been fundamentally altered because of the presence of Joe Paterno. Uh, Joe Paterno is a legend. Joe Paterno is a celebrity. Joe Paterno is a man uh, who is perceived as having unquestioned integrity, especially uh, within the Penn State community. And, And therefore, everything Joe Paterno does carries enormous and maybe outsized weight and like for instance i've already alluded to it 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 is my very strong opinion that if when the police or the detectives come to joe paterno's house in october of 2011 and joe simply says to them you know i don't remember what mike told me 10 years ago i I wish i could It, it didn't seem like that big of a deal um you know I can't vouch for what Mike did or did not see. I know nothing. If if he says that, I don't think they even arrest Jerry Sandusky. I don't think any of this happens because of of the magnitude uh, of his voice and the credibility uh, of who Joe Paterno is. And 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 because no one is communicating at this time for obvious and understandable reasons you're you're all put in a situation where you're far more vulnerable than you could possibly have ever realized. And then it even ends up flipping on Joe because the, the media 180 degrees changes the narrative because they realize that this is an awesome story, this Greek tragedy, to bring down Joe Paterno just after uh, he had become the all-time winning his coach in college football history do do you what do you make of, of that assessment uh
1: yeah i i think that that could very well be true um i i don't think that that tom corbett or the attorney general's folks set out to undo joe paterno uh tom corbett invited letterman the football letterman to the governor's mansion after all this went down to try to convince them that he really wasn't opposed to Joe Paterno and and uh, Penn State football and he he said to them at that gathering I was never after Joe Paterno it was Graham Spanier I was after uh, and I believe that's where we're Tom Corbett started out. In fact, in, in that Monday, November seventh press conference that Linda Kelly, the Attorney General at the time, had, she said, "Oh, we're not, we're not targeting, we're not after Joe Paterno. He did the right thing." But that began to change from that moment on. And at that moment on, somewhere between the discussions of Tom Corbett and and. Uh, John Surma and others on the Board of Trustees and people who were representing the governor on the board, it began to turn on Joe Paterno, uh, and uh, there was no looking back. And, you know, many of them tried later to say, oh, we didn't handle that well, it was a mistake, but... That's an understatement
0: to say it wasn't handled well. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I I would 100% agree with that. Okay. So let's get to the critical moments of this story. I mean, there's, there are so many, but obviously we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of November of, of 2011. When over that weekend, uh, when Penn state is not playing a football game, which I now believe was not a coincidence. I, be, I believe that that timing of this was, was planned in, in part because of that. By the way, do you agree with that, that, that the timing of this was was not coincidental based upon the Penn State's football schedule?
1: I, I don't know. I can tell you this. This is a, a little wrinkle here. Uh, I'm not sure it's been discussed before, but when Cynthia Baldwin came to me, Uh, right at the end of October, she said, I'm here to tell you that, I'm paraphrasing this now, I'm here to tell you that uh, Jerry Sandusky is going to be charged, there's going to be a grand jury presentment against him, and also Tim Curley and Gary Schultz are going to be charged with perjury and failure to report. Those, those words she used precisely. And she said, and this is going to occur at the very end of next week, meaning November 11th. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what a source in the attorney general's office told her.
2: All right, yeah. let, me,
0: let me stop you there, before, because the date thing is interesting, but not nearly as important as your reaction when she tells you that. What was that?
1: Well, when she told me that, uh, I thought, okay, we've got you know, a week and a half or so, two weeks, to get ready to deal with this, because this is going to be a major crisis, I didn't wasn't thinking so much about Jerry Sandusky at that point because he hadn't been he had retired 13 years earlier. Right. Uh, He 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 was a second mile uh, employee or that's where he you know he he wasn't attached to the university. Right. But to have a vice president and an athletic director charge concerned me greatly, and so we went from that moment on. We went into high gear. I immediately called the chair of the ward, Steve Garbin. He came over to my office immediately. I believe that was on a Thursday. Uh, And he he was practically living in my office for days on end as we prepared... deal with this. Graham,
0: Graham, hold on a second. Just to be clear, you got it garbled a little bit. Steve Garbin is the president of the Board of Trustees at this time, and so you you call him, and you guys are in constant communication as you're anticipating this coming indictment of Jerry Sandusky, but more importantly in your world, of Tim Curley and Gary Schultz, because they're still employees of Penn State.
1: Yes, and, and on the day that Cynthia Baldwin said this was going to come down was the day of the the scheduled Board of Trustees meeting on that Friday, November 11th. And we had been told a few days before that that Tom Corbett wanted to be at the Board of Trustees meeting. And so I told Cynthia I have to bring Paula Ammerman, the head of the Board of Trustees office, in. Even though, Cynthia, you've told me I can't tell anybody about this, I have to tell her because... We have to warn the governor that there could be a conflict of interest and he could be in a terribly awkward position because he was the attorney general and now he's going to come to the board meeting and this is going to happen in the midst of the board meeting. Uh, We have to tell him, you know, not to come because I thought I was protecting the governor from terrible awkwardness and potential accusations of a a conflict of interest. Well, little did I know that he undoubtedly knew what was happening, and it turns out it happened a week earlier. Uh, So either Cynthia Baldwin's information was faulty or they moved it up to that weekend, as you've described, when there was no football game.
0: I believe they moved it up uh, at the last second. I mean, we have... Anecdotal reports of Tom Corbett uh, kicking people out of the Nittany Lion Inn, uh, so that he could, uh, you know, move in uh, that earlier than expected. It, it, he wanted to be there, and um, you know, it, it's 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 in- important because uh, that timing was critical to the media narrative. I mean, it sounds like an incidental fact, um, but. I believe that if the indictments come down on November 11th, none of this happens the way that it, it, it occurred. And, and just to, to articulate this, you, you, you and I have never talked about this, I don't think, but let's pretend that the indictments come down on, on November 11th and um, there's no time for this to explode to impact the Nebraska home football game. And Joe Paterno coaches his last home game. Um, And, uh, you know, there might at that point, obviously, there would have been controversy, but there's no way to fire Joe Paterno by that point. And once the home football schedule is over with, Joe Paterno never gets fired that year because the whole the the whole pressure point uh, was the idea that. Penn State couldn't possibly have a nationally televised pep rally for a pedophile supporter which is how Joe Paterno was being portrayed um and, and but that was never that was no longer on the schedule. You see where I'm going? So yeah. so once you get past November uh, that 11th and that Nebraska football game, Joe now there's time. There's time. And uh and there's time for the panic to not Uh, accumulate into this massive explosion. But because they move it up a week and because there's this off week and, you know, you're coming off of uh, this great uh, achievement by Joe Paterno becoming the all-time winningest head football coach in the history of college football and ESPN's got the Nebraska game at the end of that week. It's, I mean, I don't, I don't believe these people are that smart. Uh, I mean, I I think this was maybe coincidental or they, they just collateral, damage that they never could have possibly expected, but I do believe that the timing of that impacted all of how this transpired. Do, do you see that
2: now?
1: I I just I don't know. I've never I've never thought that through. I I know that uh you know the the grand jury presentment I guess it got leaked for a few minutes on on that Friday before, and then it was taken down, and then it it finally got more officially posted on on right. Saturday.
0: And to be but, clear, just by coincidence, Sarah Gannam happened to be checking the website on that Friday night when it got leaked, which um which was a massive coincidence, right? But right. Uh, so 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 that I, go I ahead. Can
1: tell you a little more about how things unfolded. Please uh, do. So on that. Saturday, I called an emergency meeting uh, of the Board of Trustees. It it was done by conference call because it unfolded quickly. Uh, And then I suggested it was important to have another meeting on Sunday night, and about half of the trustees came in for that in person. Uh, The rest were on the phone, about 20 20 present personally and 20 on the phone, and uh, by then the students had started to, there were marches and protests starting. We could hear them outside of Old Main. They were moving from what's called Beaver Canyon, an area of downtown, to the Old Main lawn, to the Paterno's home, and back and forth. Uh, there were media trucks pouring in from all over. We had to close down the street, and, and uh, it was even like game day, people setting up tents, you know, for broadcasting. So there was a lot of tension out there, and uh, I was in my office past midnight every night trying to, to get a handle on it. But on, uh, on that Sunday afternoon, Steve Garbin, the, the board chair, uh, it was in my office, and he said, Graham, you're the only one who can manage this crisis. If the board doesn't allow you to manage it, then I'm going to have to step down as chair because I know I can't. Uh, and from about that moment on, uh, John Surma became the, the de facto chair. He was the vice chair officially. Uh
0: on well, Sunday
1: night. Hold on, hold on, hours.
0: Grant. Grant, let me stop you there because that's a critical moment in this, and and I'm not a hundred percent sure I understand uh, exactly what you just described. So, did Steve Garvin actually step down, or I mean, no,
1: okay. no, he he uh, he remained with the title of chair of the board, but he anticipated that he would need to step down because remember he was he was the captain of the 1959 football team. Right. He, he worked with Joe Paterno for decades. He hired Tim Curley and Gary Schultz. He was very supportive of me as president and he was a very good board chair. Uh, But he knew that this was out outside of his ability to manage. At least that's what he had. He told me he, uh, I was the kind of president who managed every crisis every day. But that Sunday night, the board said essentially, the board wants to manage this crisis. That's what John Serma and Steve Garvin told me after a three hour board meeting.
0: Okay. So it so did. This-
1: Sunday night. And at that point, I was not able to say anything about it, and and they also ordered me to have Joe Paterno's Tuesday press conference canceled, and I communicated that to the athletic department, and so Joe and I were were both muzzled, really, Uh, which, you know, in, in hindsight, maybe we should have ignored that, because what's the worst thing that could happen? We would lose our jobs?
0: Exactly. A- amen to that. Um, but, and, and we're getting a little bit of ahead, of, ahead of ourselves here, but what you just described is an incredibly important series of events. So so Steve Garbin, who in theory was the perfect person for you guys to have as the, the chairman of the board of trustees, he's you know he's a football guy, a paterno guy, a Spaniard guy. In theory, he's the guy that should be fighting for you. But he, as of that Sunday night, is realizing I'm guessing, correct me if I'm wrong that um that everyone's going down, that the board has decided uh, that you know it's just a matter of time now before uh, you know everybody is removed, or at least that's the direction things are going in. and he, in a de facto uh, perspective, he steps aside and allows john serma, the the vice chairman of the board to fill that power vacuum in what i have referred to is effectively a coup is is that a is that a fair assessment of what's going on by that sunday night before uh the the firings
1: so i mean if not on that sunday night then certainly on monday uh it had what you described became pretty well cemented um i think that at some point along the way this people on the board started pointing the finger at Steve Garvin because he was chair of the board. And so if if things were getting messy uh, and and Steve had been at my side working through all of this for days, they they began to turn on him. Uh, And so a a lot of people are unhappy that Steve didn't, stand up and take a stronger position to defend us.
0: I'm one of them. But
1: I see him as a victim as much as anyone in this whole thing. I, I think the rest of the board got very noisy and antsy and, and really kind of turned on Steve as well.
0: I think you're being too kind to Steve, but okay. I mean, you know him. I, I don't. Um, but, but we're, we're missing. I want to get back to the, the sermon, Serma ordering you to, to uh, cancel the press conferences uh, especially for, for Joe and muzzling you, because uh, that's incredibly, incredibly important. But, I, but I, we're missing a, a uh, we've, we've skipped over an important uh, 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 event here. And that is, you read the grand jury presentment, and you put out a statement. And you put out a statement uh, strongly defending uh, Tim Curley and Gary Schultz, and, um, you know, in retrospect, you're actually pretty fair, even to Jerry Sandusky, um, with regard to the, you know, the issue of due process, uh, take us through what went into you reading that grand jury presentment, putting out the statement and then the reaction to that statement.
1: Well, when I read the grand jury presentment, uh, You know, and things were so busy, it took me a while to get to it and and then to read it all, but when I read it, I knew that at least some of it was wrong, because uh, Tim and Gary and I have always been 100% open and honest with each other, and I knew what they had told me 10 years earlier, and it didn't match up at all about what... Was said at that time. I it, it it went way beyond that. We're talking about you know the the youth in the shower, uh, and I think the resentment might have said anal rape or uh, something like that. Anal intercourse. In very strong terms. And I and I thought, well, that is, that bears no resemblance to what was ever heard or discussed. So. Uh, I knew that, that the presentment had flaws in it. It also occurred to me that if even a fraction of it were true, that Jerry Sandusky was guilty of heinous crimes and should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. But I also thought, you know, as a public figure, I can't be coming out declaring someone guilty based on a grand jury presentment that I know is wrong at some level and before there's been a trial. So I have to be careful not to condemn someone, but I did know that Tim Curley and Gary Schultz uh, were as honest as they come, and uh, that Sunday afternoon, I, I, th- that statement that, that I put out, was fully approved by the chair of the board of trustees who had also shared it with the vice chair john serma and steve garvin in fact had told me graham that is exactly the statement that i would have put out and he said that openly sunday afternoon in a meeting of my cabinet all of the vice presidents all of the direct reports to gary schultz we had about 20 people in the conference room. And I read them the statement, and I also gave them a a statement that later was reproduced in Malcolm Gladwell's chapter about me, where I said, "You, all of you in this room have worked with Gary Schultz and Tim Curley for 16 years, and for some of you, longer than that. And you know these individuals, and I know them. And I know it's important that they receive my support, and I want to tell you this, that if you always do the right thing, if you always tell the truth, if you always act in the best interest of Penn State, and you were falsely charged with a crime, I would support you the way I'm supporting Tim and Gary. I said this is not the the standard public relations approach where you distance yourself Uh, from people who are, you know, in the midst of some controversy. And I could lose my job over this, but it's the right thing to do. And every single one of them stopped on the way out to thank me for what I said and for the position I was taking. And I would not do that differently now. It, It was the right thing to do. But later on, members of the board claimed, oh, that's why they wanted to, see me out of the presidency because I issued a statement supporting Curley and Schultz.
0: And let's be real about this. What happened was that the media reaction to it was very negative because you were standing up for at least two of the people that were accused and you were not getting your pitchfork out. And the the board, in my view, do you, and please tell me if you agree or disagree you know, basically caved under the media pressure. Is that what happened?
1: Yes, I think so.
0: And so um, do you believe, Graham, that if you had put out a statement throwing Tim, Gary, and especially Jerry Sandusky under the bus, that you would still be president of Penn State today?
1: Oh, no, I don't think so. I, I think, you know, this, I liken it to, a locomotive that it gets—it's it's a big, heavy, complex thing, and it gets starts out slowly. But once it picks up ahead of steam, it's real hard to slow down. And I—I I think, you know, by that Sunday night, Monday, certainly Tuesday, it had all gotten rolling, and I'm not sure the outcome could have been much different than it was given all of the missteps right along the way
0: that's probably uh, that's probably true but there would have been a, sh- a chance at least for you, um, you well, I
1: think there would have been a chance if I were able to get out early and talk about it the way I normally would to defuse the crisis we did put out a statement uh, the board worked we had drafted it the board changed it a little bit on that Sunday night uh, it was approved. By the Chair of the Board at about midnight that night, we put it out first thing Monday morning, talking about how the university was going to follow up and how we were getting on top of it, and that there would be an independent investigation, um, but I think, as things unfolded on Monday, perhaps with stronger involvement of uh, of the Governor and the uh, the very um, Hyped up press conference that the attorney general did with uh, big blown up pictures of Perle Schultz and Sandusky on the stage. Um, you know, I, I, I think I think it, it just was moving too quickly. Mm. On that Tuesday morning, I met with the faculty senate leadership as I did uh, at that at that scheduled time, and they said. You've got to get out in front of this. Every crisis, controversy the university has had, you are out there handling it. You are the only one who can deal with this. And I told them, sadly, that I was under orders not to do that. And it's at that point that I went back up to my office and met with Surma and Garvin and told them I was stepping down in the best interest of the university, given the board's decision to uh to want to manage this but they were not they didn't meet Monday night they were they were moving too slowly and they were letting the media write the narrative rather than the university and, right. okay so. and uh and and what on that Tuesday uh I told them that I felt I needed to step down and they begged me not to they said please board has not even begun to talk about you. We have only been talking about Joe Paterno. All right. And I'm sorry. I, I agreed that I would wait until the next day to step down. Uh, and I did do that on, on the uh, Wednesday morning, and I told him it was irrevocable.
0: All right. Now, let's go back to, to how that happens. And, and, and you use the freight train, uh, metaphor, which I think is a good one, uh, here. And because, you know, and there's, you know, there's dominoes, there's all sorts of different metaphors that you could use here. But once the, this starts rolling, uh, you know, to me, once you are not in charge, once the board Is in charge. And once John Surma is effectively in charge uh, of what's happening here, uh, there's no going back. And from my perspective, Graham, the moment that I knew as a guy who had no connection to Penn State uh, and who was just watching this unfold from Southern California with, with horror, because I I knew the media was incredibly incapable of handling this properly uh, but the moment I knew that this uh, we, we weren't in Kansas anymore, and and we left the gravitational pull of the rational Earth, and that there was there was no way to save this, was when Penn State cancels Joe Paterno's press conference on that Tuesday, that Tuesday morning, and ESPN's Tom Rinaldi even reports that you made that decision. Now you've already told us you were forced into making that decision so you did not make that decision just to be clear had it been up to you would joe paterno have had his press conference on that tuesday
1: well yes of course i i would have would never have occurred to me to to interfere with that he did that every tuesday and i i assumed he would continue through the end of the season as coach uh that was just that was john serma saying uh Uh, I I think he told me that on on Monday uh, that we don't want Joe Paterno talking about this uh, or, or, you know, uh, talking at all.
0: Now, Um, now, John, John Sermon at that point is the is the head of U.S. Steel. And um, and he's a guy who the, the media is in love with. I mean, he's he's younger than most of the people on the board. Uh, and, um, and, and what we don't know, what the public doesn't know at that time are of a couple of incredibly important things about John Surma, who is taking over the board during this crisis. One of which you told me, I'm sure you don't remember this, even though you have a really great memory. Our very first conversation over nine years ago, you told me that for several years prior to this. Every year, John Serma would come to you and say, effectively, when are we going to get rid of Joe Paterno? And you were always very confused by this. First of all, can you confirm that as true?
1: Yes, I, I think it may have been on three occasions. And the first of them would have been the year John joined the Board of Trustees and I think uh, the way I would characterize it is that uh, it was clear that he felt Joe Paterno needed to step down or be removed as head coach. And when John got to the point where he was in a leadership position on the board uh, when he became vice chair, I recall him saying to me, Uh, Graham, you need to remove Joe Paterno as head coach, and I know you're probably worried that it would, uh, our ability to continue as president, because it would be controversial, but I want you to know that if you do that, the board of trustees will have your back and would support you. Uh... Then he did go on to say, "As a CEO would say, "Now you're the CEO, so uh, you know of course it's it's your decision, but I want you to know that the board would would back you up so he was he was encouraging me to do that. He believed it was something I needed to do, but he was not going to." force me or order me to do it, that, you know, it was in my lap. And I listened to him, but there was no scenario that I ever envisioned where I was going to force Joe Paterno out. That is just not how we operated at Penn State.
0: Now, um, we now know that the Surma brothers, uh, his brother Vic Surma, uh, was at one point a, a big Joe Paterno supporter, um, but it appears as if they had a falling out over the perceived treatment of Vic Serma's son, who, who briefly played football for Joe Paterno, and who unfortunately, well after all this, ended up dying of an overdose. Uh, it is, is it your perception that the Sermas had it out for Joe Paterno and that that was, that was that, that John Surma's nephew was, was part of that? Or can you give us any insight into what the mo- motivation John Surma had for wanting to get rid of Joe Paterno was?
1: I You know, I, I can't say for certain what, what was in somebody else's mind, but it now appears that uh, at, at this point in time, from what others have analyzed and put together, that there was – something of a, of a vendetta within the Sur, Surma family, uh, and there was a negativeism about Joe Paterno. I don't know with certainty whether any of that was what led John Surma to be encouraging me. Uh, he wasn't the only trustee. There were a couple of others who along the way, uh, you know, were, were making similar suggestions. uh, uh you know, nobody with, with that kind of fame and visibility that Joe had uh, had 100% support, but right. <laughs> but he had more support than any head coach I know,
2: Right. and it was
1: deserved. And I, you know, to this day, I can say that I'm not aware of a of a university president and a head football coach that had as good a working relationship as Joe and I did, even though, you know, we we could sometimes disagree on things right and you know i'm sure he wasn't happy with me all the time and positions i took in relation to whatever it might be on caa legislation or right. putting a baseball park you know across the street from the football stadium and taking up parking
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mean joe paterno didn't run the university I-, I was under the impression that joe paterno ran the university Graham.
1: you know that has to be one of the most offensive ideas that Louis Free put in his report, that, that uh, Joe Paterno was really running the university, uh, that Tim Curley was a lackey of Joe Paterno. Uh, it, it, you know, Joe was so respectful of the presidency of the university that he insisted on coming to my office for any and every meeting that we might have had, uh, even though it, it might have been at a time when he was super busy getting ready for a game and I offered to come to his office. Absolutely not. He, he, hmm. he should come to the president's office. Uh, in all of the years, in the 16-plus years that I was president, I was only in Joe Paterno's office twice, once for the ribbon-cutting and once to drop a donor off <laughs> uh, who who uh, he wanted to meet. All right. Uh, that was it.
0: Interesting. Um, all right. Yeah. So so go back to John Serm again, because I really believe this is a critical moment in all this. So he orders you to cancel Joe Paterno's press conference, something you've said right here you never would have done. At that moment, I know this is over because at that moment, Especially when Joe doesn't immediately, and I believe he didn't do this because Scott Paterno was advising him, um, but when Joe doesn't immediately invite Tom Rinaldi into his kitchen for a one-on-one interview to give his side of this, it's over because, one, there is now massive division between Joe Paterno and the university. The university is now perceived as separating themselves from Joe Paterno. The media sees blood in the water. They're already in State College circling like a pack of sharks. And now they know this thing is going down. And, and so it only intensifies the the media coverage, the speculation about the future of Joe Paterno. And it also sends a signal to the rest of the board of trustees that Joe, that supporting Joe is not going to be the winning side. Um, first of all, before I go further that, with that, do you, do you agree with that general assessment in retrospect?
1: Yes, in retrospect, I think that's a fair assessment.
0: Right. So, so because Joe is muzzled, and, and it's not helping, by the way, that he's 84 years old and, and therefore is seen as now incredibly weak, And, and, you know, and then unfortunately they put out, you know, a statement that uh, this is going to be his, his last home game. He's his last season, uh, even though that was already known, right? You already knew this was going to be his last season, even though that was not publicly stated, correct?
1: Yes. We, we had a signed uh, retirement agreement. Joe signed an agreement. It was all laid out and uh, he was going to, Finish. He had three games left, I guess, and uh, he was going to finish coaching at the end of of the season. Uh, He and Tim Curley and I had spoken about it. The the retirement uh, agreement uh, was shared with the leaders of the Board of Trustees months earlier. Uh, They had read it. I'd handed it out to them, asked them to read it, and I retrieved the copies, which they wanted to give back to me uh so uh the there was one provision in the agreement that said that joe should be the one to announce it we agreed that he would have the privilege the right responsibility to announce his own retirement uh i had actually proposed something different as we were talking it through months earlier uh i said Let's announce it at the beginning of the season, because wherever you play that year, I mean, in every stadium, on television, it will want, you will want to be celebrated, and Penn State will want to be celebrated, and I think it would be great for the university if we did it that way, and he said, no, I don't want any folder all, at all. I'm going to wait until the season is over, and then I will announce it, and we said, okay, fine.
0: And Graham, Graham, I mean, obviously we'll never know, but I actually believe if they had gone down uh, your path, there's a chance this goes in a very different direction because the final nail in Joe Paterno's coffin was the perception, and, you know, perception, especially in a panic, is everything, especially with today's media. The perception was that him announcing that he was retiring at the end of the year was effectively a guilty plea. Now we know it wasn't because it was already in the plan, but because the media is so stupid and, and because they already had the narrative they wanted him, him announcing that is perceived as well. Oh, he's, he's truncating his own tenure at Penn state. So obviously he must've done something wrong. Do you, do you, do you see that? I, I,
1: I, I think that you make a good point, but here's how I see it. I think there are two reasons why Joe announced his retirement really at the same time I was uh, offering my resignation uh, from the board uh, on that Wednesday morning. um, And by the way, I didn't know Joe was was doing at the same time. I believe that on that Tuesday night, he heard, directly or indirectly, from someone on the board that they were going to fire him the next day. And Joe knew that, uh, that in order for him to receive the, frankly, modest benefits, he or his family, the modest benefits in, in his retirement agreement... That he needed to announce, be the one to announce his retirement, that that's what would make it effective. And, uh, and the second thing, I believe, that he saw what was unfolding in the same way I did, and he was feeling that he needed to be gracious and announce it now to, uh, to help defuse mm-hmm.
2: No,
0: know, I,
1: I the got, crisis.
0: Graham, I get, I get. The, uh, the rationale behind it, um, I'm, but strategically, it was it was a blunder, many one of many, partially because this was such an unprecedented situation that I don't think anybody fully understood. And it's and I've been in these bubbles before. Where I mean, where you're in, <laughs> not like you have been, but I've been around these bubbles in these kinds of stories, and it is very very difficult to get a true perspective on what's really going on. And and there's oftentimes some naivete, um, but in this particular situation, we weren't in Kansas anymore. And the normal um, PR maneuvers that might've worked in a normal case were gonna backfire here. And the announcing of the retirement, in my view, will always be the final nail in the coffin because it immediately got perceived in a very negative way. I have the clips from ESPN uh, and their reaction to it, and it's all exactly uh, as I, I am uh, implying. Uh, you know that this was Joe trying to dictate uh, things. This is this is uh, him effectively admitting uh, that he did. You know he should have done more. That's part of that statement. Remember, uh, you know this, which was completely uh, taken out of context because they forget the with the benefit of hindsight, which is why we called the podcast with the benefit of hindsight. So there's all sorts of things that are happening here that are that are going to be misperceived and are going to harm any chance of this turning out okay but but, but I I don't want to let go of the John Surma thing because uh, you know Surma we've already talked about the the conflict of interest or the potential vendetta that he and his brother have against Paterno do you believe that Surma was smart enough to understand that cutting Joe off at the legs and muzzling him was going to make it impossible for him to survive this and that he was taking advantage of a crisis. Do you believe that Surma had that as his motivation?
1: I I don't know. I can't speculate. I can tell you one other bit of information that might help you come to a conclusion, but remember while while all of this was going down it was a very tense time for me I mean I was having to deal with you know our, our police and security and uh, student uprising uh, going around chanting Joe Pa Turno um, there was uh, so much going on and uh, and I was being stalked by uh, many reporters uh, it, it, it was it was like what you would see in a bad movie with reporters, you know, running backwards, taking pictures, yelling out questions surrounding you, surrounding your car. Uh, it, it was a very tense time, so I, I I wasn't able to think it all through it as it was was unfolding. But uh, in that Monday, in that uh, Wednesday morning meeting where I told, Steve Garvin and John Surma, that in the best interests of the university, I was presenting them with letter of, of resignation. Uh, it was irrevocable. Uh, Steve Garvin dropped his head. He was very depressed and saddened and said, you know, I, I wish you would do this. And John Surma said, Graham, I... I wish you wouldn't do this, but I understand why you are, and I can assure you that the university is going to treat you very well." Uh, that turned out not to be true, of course, but um, <laughs> but then John Serma said, Now we have two questions that we really would like your advice on. Uh, the first question was about what to do next in terms of, of a new president, uh, and I gave them advice on that. And then he said, uh, now, some of the trustees are thinking about firing Joe Paterno tonight. What do you, what would your advice be about that? (laughs) And I was a little stunned by that because I knew and they knew that he had three games left, that it you know, the season was going to be over soon, that he was retiring at the end of the season. And I said to, to John, uh, and Steve listening, but it was mostly to John who asked the question, I said, well, you know, he just has the three games left, and then and we already have the the signed retirement agreement. And John Serma said, well, I think he will try to weasel out of it. Uh... Or he might try to weasel a lot of it. I can't remember the exact words right now. Uh, he was, you know, suspicious about hmm. about whether it would happen, and then it turns out at that same time, Joe was announcing that he would retire at the end of the season. And I believe what happened that night, based upon what a few trustees of, of, of trustees from that era have told me, is that they were so angry. That Joe announced his retirement. That they wanted to. They decided to fire him effective immediately, uh, because how dare they take away the right of the board of trustees to decide on such a personnel matter, even though they knew or should have known that it was part of the agreement <laughs> that Joe mm-hmm. would have to re- announce it himself or had the right to.
0: Well, I, both those things you just said there uh, only make me uh, more confident in my assessment of what, what actually happened with regard to both uh, Surma and the board's reaction to Joe's statement of retirement. One last thing on Surma. Uh, it is also my perception that at this very critical time period, he and Tom Corbett are in an alliance, the governor of, of Pennsylvania that he and Tom Corbett aren't in an alliance, and that with Corbett and Surma both pushing the notion of, of you know, your resignation, your forced resignation, and the firing of Joe Paterno, that there's no, no chance, especially with the media firestorm going on, that anyone on that board is going to stand up to the governor and to Surma, and that Surma wants Paterno and Corbett wants you. What do you make that uh, what do you make of that assessment?
1: Uh, I think that's probably a fair assessment. I think uh, uh, corbett and and Surma were close. Um, I mean, they may not have been personal friends, but they they had a relationship. Uh, I know that uh, some sometime earlier, some months earlier, when uh, Corbett was expressing some negativism towards Penn State. John Surma had brokered uh, an opportunity for Corbett and I to meet very privately uh, in the U.S. Steel suite at the Duquesne Club in Pittsburgh and had a very good, candid discussion. Um, And, uh, and of course, uh, U.S. Steel is a major producer of what's called... Uh, oil country tubular goods—it's <laughs> the technical term. It, it's the the pipes, the steel pipes that go deep down into the ground as part of drilling for the Marcellus Shale. And and Tom Corbett saw the Marcellus Shale exploration, gas exploration, as you know, how to get Pennsylvania's economy going again. And U.S. Steel w- would have been a major producer, you know, customer uh, or producer. Uh, for customers uh, of those goods, so there was a I think a mutual understanding of mm-hmm. their need the two of them their need to cooperate with each other on a number of fronts. all right
0: um, now, I want to go back to when the presentment comes out, and the first story, uh, I don't even know if you know this, but um, but the first story about Joe Paterno. By Sarah Gannum, who would end up winning the the Pulitzer Prize in in this case, bizarrely, uh, has the headline "Joe Paterno praised for handling of Jerry Sandusky sex abuse suspicions." On that that Saturday, when the story is first breaking, and you know Joe is still fresh off of becoming the all-time winningest coach in the history of college football, if someone had told you, Graham, by Wednesday night. You will have resigned un, under duress, and Joe Paterno will be fired by the Board of Trustees. What would you have told them?
1: <laughs> uh, I The part about Joe Paterno would have surprised me. Um, but at the board meeting on that Sunday night that I talked about earlier, um, the... Secretary of Education uh, for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, who was uh, Corbett's principal liaison for the board, did say to another trustee, it was reported to me right away that evening, uh, I know you're close to Graham Spanier, but by the end of the week, he will not be the president of Penn State. You need to prepare yourself for that. Mm. Uh, So I, I was alerted to the position coming out of Harrisburg uh, that weekend and it, uh, it it took me certainly by surprise and was a great concern to me but as things unfolded no I guess I shouldn't have been surprised
0: now at this time you're not indicted
1: um, no that was that was a year later. Right,
0: right. And I, but I want to go through the timeline here because t- the timeline is so critically important to understand the progression, uh, progression of events here. And the reason I'm, I think this is a, a fair uh, assessment uh, that you know, people are already saying, well, Graham Spanier is doomed uh, here is because obviously you're very close to Tim Curley and Gary Schultz, and they are indicted. And I know, you know, it's natural for humans to always look at what's happening to them through the prism of their own self-interest and their own experience. That's that's human nature. It makes perfect sense. But I am now of the belief, having been able to put all these pieces together over 10 years, that the reason why Tim and Gary are indicted effectively at the same time as Jerry Sandusky is... is there's, there's several reasons, you know, I'm sure that Corbett was thrilled to know that this is going to be a a shot across the bow, or maybe not, maybe even more directly than that against you. Uh, That's certainly part of it. But in my view, the reason why Tim and Gary, and then eventually you are even brought into this is because you have to look at their case against Jerry Sandusky at this time. And we now know that their case against Jerry Sandusky was perilously weak and that if Mike McQuarrie is at all discredited by anybody who is perceived as truthful or credible, like Tim and Gary would have been if they were not indicted and discredited by this full-on media assault if Tim and Gary come out and say, wait a minute, Mike McQuarrie never told us anything close to a sexual assault, having been witnessed involving Jerry Sandusky and and a boy in a Penn State shower. And if Joe Paterno had said, I don't remember, instead of following his instincts and backing up a guy who had quarterbacked for him and coached for him for a long time in a situation where I don't believe Joe Paterno remembered what the heck Mike told him in a very short conversation, uh, almost 10 years earlier. It, if that happens, their case against Sandusky very easily collapses without McQuarrie. And we know this because the grand jury was stalled before Mike McQuarrie comes to their attention, and it's only after that, that all of a sudden, uh, you know, this stalled investigation explodes into what ends up becoming his, his arrest on all these counts of horrible sex abuse allegations. Do you agree, Graham, that Tim and Gary, from a strategic standpoint, were indicted not so much because the prosecution really believed that they committed perjury and all these other felonies for which they would never be convicted, but because strategically they needed them discredited to build a firewall around Mike McQuarrie. What do you make of that theory?
1: I had never thought about it in those terms. Uh, I, I do see Evidence and some of the materials turned over to us that they never expected to go to trial against Tim Curley and Gary Schultz because I was the target, and they assumed that Tim and Gary would flip on me. Uh, after I engaged my own attorneys in 2012, they ran that theory by me, and I said, that's never going to happen because Tim and Gary are honest people, and they would never say something that isn't true. In in fact, at one point, I mean, Gary and Tim and I didn't talk for (laughs) a year or two or three because our lawyers had said, don't talk to each other. If you ever get on the witness stand, they're going to want to ask if you've been talking or rehearsed your testimony in any way, and you want to honestly be able to say no, But now, years later, Gary Schultz has said to me very clearly, Graham, they wanted us to flip on you, and I said to them, wait a minute, you've charged me with perjury, and now you are asking me to commit perjury by saying that we told Graham Spanier something that we never told him? I will not do that. Uh, So I, I think... They're charging Curley and Schultz may have been about me. Uh, Your theory that it may have been about McQuarrie is also a a plausible one. Uh, It's, you know, ultimately that was all thrown out by the Superior Court because of the mess that Cynthia Baldwin created, uh, you know, uh, testifying Against us, so to speak, at the grand jury, uh, telling many falsehoods in her testimony, it you know it's what they ultimately needed to indict me. It was because of Cynthia Baldwin's false testimony, just uh, like three working days before the election of a new attorney general.
0: And, and we're going to get to your in, in indictment and your trial uh, shortly, um, but you said something really important there about uh, and this is elementary uh, but, but which apparently uh, is is above Louis free's ability to to comprehend reality uh, but but you said something incredibly important about this alleged cover-up theory uh, that the prosecution logically you know if they you know makes some sense that if this is and even close to true that there was really a cover-up for Jerry Sandusky's sexual abuse crimes. Forget about the fact that that makes no damn sense and there's no real evidence of it. Uh, um, but let's pretend that it, it happened. If, if it did, as soon as you're no longer president of Penn State, Tim and Gary are going to save their own hides by flipping on you. That's, that's just, that's cover up 101. And yet that doesn't happen. Um, and it doesn't happen because of the reasons you said, which is... That- <laughs> It, there was no cover-up and Tim and Gary aren't aren't gonna lie about that but but is was it it had to have been frustrating to you Graham for people to not even think through the very basics of how this cover-up would have collapsed if it ever did occur And by the way, just to be clear, let's pretend, uh, the the, you know, the only other alternative scenario here is that Tim and Gary did this on their own without, you know, your knowledge or your, uh, your approval, which is probably more ridiculous than the idea that, that, you know, they, that this would happen, um, at your behest and that they wouldn't flip on you after you were no longer in power. So c- can you, can you talk to me about just the basics of this theory that you guys covered up for Jerry Sandusky and how it collapses just on its face,
1: well, there was never any cover up there was never any knowledge of sexual abuse or pedophilia or anything of the kind uh, so yeah, there, there was nothing to cover up and uh had there had there been something that we heard that was actionable, any of us would have taken action. I mean, why would anyone protect a former employee? Uh, and, and Louis Free said his, his main conclusion was that to avoid bad publicity, the four most powerful men at the university covered this up. Well, that, that's ridiculous. We're, we're probably the four people in the university who were most accustomed to bad publicity. <laughs> uh, every day there, there is bad publicity at one level or another, and we didn't, we, we prefer good publicity, but you're always going to have some, and we never shied away from it. And, uh, it, it it's just really pretty absurd. That free came to that conclusion, and the, and the prosecutors, you know, wanted to believe the story. They didn't even call it a cover-up. They they called it a con- conspiracy of silence. They were saying our crime was that we were silent, not that we said anything or covered anything up, but we we just didn't talk about it. I, I mean, it, it the the whole thing is as you know really makes no sense if you look at all of the details, all of the evidence, all of the facts.
0: And and obviously, Louis Free did not do that. We're going to talk about him uh, momentarily. But I I want to go back to something you said about the presentment. And that you said you knew for certainty that certain parts of the presentment were not true. And you knew that because you and Tim and Gary had experienced it. And and so even within your, within your own experiences, you knew that was not even close to being what actually happened. To me, that's... That's right. Okay. And, and so, so that's important from a number of perspectives, but one of which, which might not be immediately obvious, is that... Graham, I think you know this uh, from our conversations, and I know you've listened to parts of the podcast. But but one of the things that uh, is so frustrating to me is, uh, and there's so many, but one of them is, this is a very rare if, of maybe unique crime that's being alleged here, where the cover-up, the cover-up, was instrumental to proving the actual crimes of sex abuse. And, and I, I have tried this with so many people, including on this podcast with Bob Costas. Bob Costas does not believe in the cover-up. But in this particular set of circumstances, if you don't believe the cover-up, you have to believe that the people telling you that the crimes themselves occurred are liars or at the very least total morons who are saying things in a presentment that are untrue. And that the prime witness, Mike McQuarrie in this case is either saying or being perceived or portrayed as saying things that are untrue. So if you use basic logic, if you know that a huge part, a massive part, a a cornerstone, of of the entire case is not true at what point especially when it's this very same people I mean it's the same people that are prosecuting both the Sandusky allegations and the supposed Penn State cover-up at what point do you start to question everything And, and and that had to have occurred to you at some point did it not Graham
1: oh yes well of course been a great frustration that, uh, that what was alleged doesn't match up with what I know and, and what I've heard and, of course, in, in a lot of documents that have been turned over to me that I, I've been able to, uh, to study since. You know, if you go back in time to 2001 or late... 2010, uh, as you've suggested, um, what what was told to me in a brief conversation uh, on a Monday afternoon was that a member of the athletic department staff, no name mentioned, uh, was uncomfortable because he saw uh, Jerry Sandusky with one of his kids, uh, no, one of his youth after a workout in an athletic uh, department facility. Uh, And he didn't know what he saw because it was indirect and around a corner. Okay, that's pretty much the extent of of what, what was said. Now, nothing was said about the time of day, About the age of the youth, uh, about anything sexual, uh, about even which locker room facility it was on campus. Uh, People have imputed certain knowledge based upon other facts that have come out over the years, but. you know, I I was not involved with the second mile. Uh, I was never on their board, was never asked to be on their board, never played in their golf tournament, and never made a contribution to the second mile. Uh, I It's not that I wasn't philanthropic. I just gave my money elsewhere, a lot of it to the university. So I didn't know anything about the second mile. I didn't even know they had a staff or an executive director. I thought they just had a, a board chair, Uh, and I thought they served high school age students, high school age kids who were disadvantaged. I had no idea that they had younger, that they served any younger children. Um, and of course, Jerry Sandusky, you know, was a foster parent. I knew that, uh, revered in the community. Uh, I also knew that, uh, Virtually all of our showers in the university were, uh, what we call gang showers. You know, there were no curtains or stalls at that time. I think they have some now. But, uh, it's, and I worked out usually about three times a week in, uh, in Rec Hall, uh, where they, there were, you know, you might have anywhere from two to, 20 people showering at once. Uh, they, they were open showers and open locker rooms, and we had hundreds of junior high and high school kids in our athletic facilities every day. Kids, you know, we were... Our facilities were built in large part with public money over the years, and young people were in and out of them. I simply didn't hear anything unusual. And when when I said... When I asked the question again, are you sure how that—that's how it was described to you as horsing around? And Gary uh, uh, Tim said yes. That's what the word that was used. You know, that was it. There was nothing to be suspicious about, other than that we were uncomfortable as well. And if somebody else was uncomfortable, we should probably tell Jerry Sandusky knock that off, give him a directive not to bring second-mile kids in, and. We thought we were being very careful by suggesting that Tim, who would have the ball on this, would go to the head of the second mile and explain that we didn't want second-mile kids being brought in uh, to the facilities at all, not even just by Jerry, but by anyone, and uh, and let let them handle it from there. Uh, You know, that it, it never occurred to me. And, may, you know, obviously, in retrospect, I, I was very naive, but from the moment Tim and Gary and Jerry Sandusky were charged and the grand jury, I never thought that I was at risk in any way. I, I thought, well, I'm like four steps removed from this, and we handled this very responsibly given what we heard. I mean, Gary and Tim and I are there basically figuratively scratching our heads Thinking, well, you know, this doesn't feel right. And, uh, you know, when, when Tim emailed me and said he wanted to, to bring Jerry along with him to talk to the head of the second mile, I, I said something like, um, I think that's a very humane approach. You know, you don't paddle on him behind his back, you bring him along. And so he can be there and hear the discussion. I, I said that's a humane thing to do, and that word was leaked by itself and twisted and made it sound sinister. Uh, it, it, it just, um, it, it, it just was part of that locomotive that got going that, you know, right. couldn't couldn't be undone.
0: Graham, let's let's get down to brass tacks on the McQuerry situation. All right, um, do you? Or and have you ever believed that Mike McQuarrie witnessed a sexual assault of a boy in the in the shower that night?
1: From everything I know, I don't believe that's what happened that night. Uh, I I've seen plenty of evidence that suggests that that didn't happen. McQuarrie himself contacted. Janelle Eshbach, one of the prosecutors, and said, that's wrong. You, you've, you've misstated this in your presentment. I, I never said that, and I never believed it. And he has said since in his various testimonies, I never said that to Joe Paterno. I wouldn't have. I would never have talked to Joe that way. It is not what uh, Tim and Gary heard from, or what Tim heard from Joe Paterno on that Sunday and repeated to me. So, no. I, I was so so sure that this was all wrong that I asked one of my attorneys, who was friendly with Andrew Shubin, the attorney representing the so-called victim number two and, and others, to please meet with him and say, as an officer of the law, don't you have an obligation to come forward or to have your client come forward and to say the truth about what happened that night because an innocent man, Graham Spanier, has been charged and could end up in jail over this. And you've got to prevent that from happening, given that you know the truth. And he would not come forward and do the right thing.
0: Now, that's an important story you just told. I, I've known about that for a long time, uh, but I never divulged it on the podcast because I didn't have permission to do so. Uh, but let's just reiterate what you just said. Uh, you you have someone uh, who's close to you go to Andrew Shubin, the attorney for yes, Allen. One of my
1: attorneys right. who happened to be a, a colleague of his.
0: Right. He knows Shubin well. He goes to Andrew Shubin, the attorney for Alan Myers, who, who you now know, I believe largely thanks to my work, uh, as so-called victim number two, the boy in the shower, and and pleads, pleads with Shubin to have Alan Myers just come forward and tell the truth, as he did on the day that you and Joe Paterno left the university, November 9th, 2011, in a statement to Jerry Sandusky's uh, investigator that could not have been uh, you know, more declarative, that that he was the boy, nothing untoward ever happened, no sexual assault ever happened that night or any other night involving uh, Jerry Sandusky and him, and that Andrew Shubin was unwilling to do that. Now, that um, is important from a number of perspectives, but one of which is I think it pretty much proves beyond any shadow of a doubt that you have never believed that Mike McQuarrie witnessed a sexual assault. Uh, you never did at the beginning of this when when the decisions were made on how to handle it. Uh, and you don't believe that now with a mountain of more information and evidence than you ever had at your disposal uh, back when you were first notified of this in in early uh, 2001, which is now 20 years ago. It's important to point that out. And and Gary Schultz uh, is also in that same category, that he is equally positive that Mike McQuarrie never witnessed a sexual assault and that no sexual assault occurred that night. Can you give us an insight as to whether or not Tim Curley agrees with you and Gary on this point?
1: I'm sure he does, because Tim was the person who heard the report from Joe Paterno, and then Tim and Gary met with Mike McQuery. I, I didn't know who it was then, and I, I didn't even know at first they were going to meet with him, but I think they were taking the extra step of talking to him directly to... Uh, to, to make sure they were being responsible and, and getting all the information they could, and uh, they they never heard that. So yes, I'm sure. So all they would th- have to. So, uh, and and what what I said to my attorney before the meeting with Andrew Shubin is, look, I'm not. If he comes comes clean and tells the truth, I mean, what this was really in my self interest at this point. I I don't care. I don't, he needs to come clean about that night. If he was assaulted some other time, I have no knowledge about that. That's not what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. If he got several million dollars from the university, I am not going to go after him for that. That's not my business. That That's not my objective here. I just want the truth about what happened in the shower that night. Right. That's all I'm asking Right. Alan Moss and Andrew Shubin uh, uh, to right. uh, be honest about right. and, I, and and I never talked to Andrew Shubin, my attorney came back to me and said, "I've had that discussion, and he's not going right. to do anything.
0: right. And but the conclusion here is, Graham Spanier, and on the record now, uh, Gary Schultz already on the record. Uh, Tim Curley, uh, uh, you know, it's clear what his that his beliefs are the same as yours are all still positive based upon all the evidence that they have seen and their own experiences with McQuerry and with Sandusky on this are positive that there was no assault in the shower in the night in question. And that is obviously a. That's the centerpiece of everything. That's the centerpiece of the cases against the three of you. And obviously, that's also the centerpiece, both in perception and effectively in reality, in the case against Jerry Sandusky himself. and And yet, in the public perception and in the media world, this is not even a question. I mean, people who have no knowledge, they don't know they don't even know Alan Meyer's name they know nothing they don't know that the date is all wrong they probably don't even know that the date got changed uh you know and that's obviously in the public record the prosecution had to admit to a 13-month change in the in the McQuery date and i mean and so we're living in this bizarro world where the people that are closest to this who actually lived it are all positive that this never happened yet it's destroyed the perception that it happened has destroyed so very many lives. Talk to me about how you comprehend and 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 make that work in your brain.
1: well it it's destroyed the lives at some level, varying levels of all the people that you've mentioned that we've talked about, but also, I think there's an unwritten story about the dozens of other employees at Penn State. Who lost their jobs as a part of this. People who were moved out of their positions, or fired, or forced into retirement. Uh, there were, and you have the entire community of tens of thousands of Penn State alums who have been badly hurt by this and, and, and offended in in many ways. Turmoil that that we've seen unfold in the board of trustees at, at the university over time, uh, the, the the university becoming a much more litigious place. The financial damage to the university. You know, we had free bond rating upgrades during my presidency, and and very strong reserves, and much much of that money had to be spent in in uh, settlements that often weren't, you know, properly vetted. It, it, it's the, the damage has been very, very substantial, and, you know, I I, I, I regret it. I, I'm so sorry about the damage it's caused for everybody. I mean, it's not just me, but there's hardly a day that goes by that I feel like I'm not doing therapy with alums and donors and, and uh People in the community. You know, when I go to the grocery store, it's like a receiving line, and I, I have to. You know, I, I'm, I'm happy to greet people and, and exchange hugs, and and uh, see the tears that are are out there still ten years later. I mean, when when Karen Pete's uh, board chair, after this unfolded, said, you know, this will all be forgotten by in a couple of years. No.
2: <laughs> right.
1: We're 10 years later now, and it's not forgotten. Well, it, um, it's, it, it's still a discussion every day.
0: That's that's so true and very interesting. Let me just add very quickly a, a group of people into that list of, of who have been damaged that I didn't even think about. Bruce Heim, whose interview for this podcast I know you listen to because I know you listen to all of them, uh, made a very good point that you know every kid that ever went through the second mile had what was o- almost surely a positive experience in their life turned into a trauma yeah um o- o- over something that um I'm positive did not happen and um and that's another tragedy but let's let's go back to to mike mcquery so none of the three of you even to this day, have any doubt that Mike McQuarrie's perception, uh, at least the, the perception of his testimony, that he witnessed a horrible sexual assault of a young boy. You're all positive that did not happen. So the obvious question is, how is it that Mike ends up testifying on numerous occasions, although in very different ways, effectively saying that that occurred? Do you believe, Graham Spaniard, that Mike McCrory was manipulated by a desperate prosecution into either believing or at the least providing a testimony that was not accurate because they so desperately needed a witness for a case that had floundered for three years? Do you believe that that's what happened with Mike?
1: Well, I've read all of his stories, his testimony, his interviews, and they, they they change. They've changed over time a little bit. Uh, they, they seem to get increasingly embellished. Uh, and uh, keep in mind, I i took the position from the beginning that I will not take the fifth on any, any legal action or trial. I testified at Mike McQuarrie's trial against the university. I gave depositions in every lawsuit that was brought involving the university. I think there were maybe five of them that where I gave depositions uh, where I was asked. Uh, I met with the U.S. Department of Education representatives. My testimony has been very consistent and uh, told them exactly what I what i knew and what transpired and uh, nobody's ever disputed anything that that i've said um yet uh we we have this misinformation that's that's lingering out there uh and it's based in part on mike mcquery's changing testimonies
0: and and so you know, obviously, there's got to be a reason why his testimonies are changing. I believe that, by the way, one of the key moments when Mike's story starts to change is when Mike it was when Joe Paterno dies, and there's no longer a Joe Paterno around to to to, to put guardrails around what he's uh, able to say. Uh, by the way, let me uh, since you and I, I don't know what you're allowed to say and what you're not, but I know you're very close to Sue Paterno, who has said uh, in an email that we have. That the the meeting between Joe and Mike, the famous meeting, took all of three minutes in her legendary recollection. Uh, does does Sue? Um, how would you describe Sue's perception of the evolution of Mike's testimony? And does she also uh, notice that after Joe's passing, that Mike has has uh, become far more uh, willing to say things uh, specifically about? uh, the interaction between Mike and Joe uh, that he might not have been free to do so when Joe was alive.
1: Well, I, I wouldn't want to claim to, to know what Sue would say in answer to that. I, I can tell you that she and I've had many discussions and she's very supportive of me and I'm supportive of her. And I, I think we see things pretty much the same way. Um, but I, I wouldn't want to put any words in her mouth. All right,
0: mouth. fair enough. Okay, so so just to get an answer to my previous question, was Mike McQuarrie manipulated by prosecutors who were desperate for a witness here, Graham?
1: Uh, one would have to assume so, but again, I can't say with certainty because I'm I'm not there in in on their discussions. But you know what what he has said in some uh, in some of his testimonies does not match up well with what I know and at times does not seem entirely credible
0: and let's be clear um, in the podcast we go into great detail about why Mike would be vulnerable to being manipulated one and I, I think you know this about me Graham I always try to presume the best in people I do not automatically presume corruption Uh, at least at first and I and I actually and I think you're in the same boat and I actually think both of us have suffered uh over this 10-year span because we presume we gave too much benefit of the doubt to people who didn't deserve it uh you know in your case Cynthia Baldwin and maybe Mike McQuarrie and 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 me definitely Mike McQuarrie uh and and some others but I I would like to presume that, that Mike doesn't realize that he's not telling the truth and that that the desire to help get someone he gets convinced is a monster might shift someone's memory after 10 years, uh, especially when they're being told about other accusers and being told that Aaron Fisher is credible. And so there's a, there's a rational reason why, and I've, I've referred to this as the Loch Ness monster theory where, where Mike gets convinced that he saw the Loch Ness monster. There's also other explanations for why he would be, fearful of being approached by investigators. There's the issue of the the pictures of his naked penis sending to a woman, not his wife. By the way, he's now divorced uh, through a Penn State phone. There's uh, very credible allegations of him having gambled on college football games in which he played, including a rather remarkable video on YouTube involving uh, him uh, throwing a touchdown pass at the very end of a game against Rutgers that caused a fight between the Rutgers head coach and... Joe Paterno, um, I also know, and I'm not asking you to get into the details, but can you can you confirm that you are aware of other elements of what was going on in Mike McCurry's life at this time that he was approached by investigators that would have also made him feel more vulnerable to a situation like this?
1: Well, I. I think I I can say this, that uh, because a a lot of people feel that uh, what happened to me isn't right and what was unfolding over the years wasn't right, and people who know me, a lot of people have come forward to tell me privately uh, about information they have and... Uh, some of it is not very uh, positive about Mike McQuarrie, uh and, you know, I, I don't want to make any accusations, but yes, people have, have said things to me which, which would make me question uh, his ability to have been completely honest and straightforward about everything.
0: Fair enough. All right. Now, um, and since we're here, uh, although there are other things I need to get to with in our remaining minutes with, uh, with regard to the free report and obviously your trial, but I would be remiss if I didn't at least get you on the record since we're, we're almost dancing around it a little bit. Gary, Gary Schultz has been on the record on, on this podcast saying that he knows of no evidence indicating to him that Jerry Sandusky is a pedophile or that committed sexual assault on children. Uh, Al Lord, someone you're very close to, has been even more definitive in saying that after all the evidence he's seen, he does not believe that Jerry Sandusky was guilty of the crimes that he was accused of. Bob Capretto, another former member of the Penn State Board of Trustees, has said the same thing. Uh, Bruce Heim has shifted his position and and now believes that Jerry Sandusky is innocent. Uh, Where are you on this question, the core question of the entire case, as to whether or not these crimes ever actually were committed do you agree with those people uh, that i just mentioned
1: well i i did not attend sandusky's trial and i have not i've been so consumed with legal issues surrounding my case that i haven't focused on sandusky what does seem evident to me is that he was rushed into trial in a matter of months His attorney was unprepared. Uh, His attorney actually resigned as his attorney, and the judge forced him to go ahead to trial. Uh, So it it seems evident to me, as it does to many, many others, that at the very least, he did not get a fair trial. Uh, I can't give an opinion about his innocence or guilt on all charges, because... I just don't know, but I have read and listened to all of the documentation that has raised serious questions about some or maybe even all of his guilt. But I, I don't want to give an opinion on that because I, I don't have all of the information. Uh, I think it, it's a le- legitimate topic for you and and uh... others to have focused on
0: look i get why you don't want to say that he's innocent Um, but let me ask you this question in, in another way uh... you have been as deeply embroiled in the evidence in this case as anybody on the planet you have access to documents that almost no one else has uh... Have you seen any evidence in in the last 10 years or in the last 20 years since you were involved in this at the beginning, have you ever seen any evidence that convinced you that Jerry Sandusky actually committed sexual assault against children?
1: The, the actual evidence that I've seen would suggest that at the very least Sandusky had what in today's language would be called boundary issues, uh, you know, putting his hands on the knees, on the knee of a of a youth while he was driving that person from one location to another. But uh, I, I don't see much that goes beyond that in the materials that I have.
0: Okay, so just to be clear... You have never seen any evidence that convinces you that Jerry Sandusky actually committed these crimes. Is that an accurate statement?
1: I think that's an accurate statement. But you know, again, I I'm not the one they would have had to present at the evidence. Okay, so but I, but
0: but on the other, but Graham, to be clear, you have been privy. I've
1: seen that there are documents, many documents that were turned over to me in the course of their pursuit of me. And, and in those documents are some materials that are Sandusky related. And no, I, I don't see any anything conclusive in the materials I've seen, uh, uh, other than absolutely, you know, what we would call boundary issues and behavior that resembles, I, you might describe as a as an adolescent in a grown-up body, <laughs> you know,
2: right. wrestling,
1: bear hugs, uh, goofing around, throwing kids around in the swimming pool, that kind of thing.
0: Right. And I guess my bottom line on this, and I'm, I'm not going to belabor this because there's other things we need to get to in our, our dwindling moments, but um, you know, I'm a big believer in if something is true, you have to then presume what would happen in light of that. And if this was true, and if Jerry Sandusky had really sexually abused all of these boys over this extended period of time, as has been alleged, not only would everybody at Penn State, at least in retrospect, have gone, oh my gosh, this was obvious, but after 10 years of unprecedented investigations and numerous criminal cases, it would have shown up somewhere, Graham. You you would you would have gotten you would have been convinced of this by now, and you're and you're clearly not. Isn't that significant?
1: <laughs> well, I'm not going to argue with you.
0: <laughs> all right, you're not. I get it. I get where you're coming from. I I've lived it uh, for ten years. I understand. Though uh, know, it's still very frustrating. Um, all right, so let's go back to you. And um, and during this time period of of uh, after, uh, the, the, the firestorm after the firings, uh, you know, Jerry gets his, uh, his Salem witch trial, uh, and, uh, there's the convictions and then immediately Louis Free jumps into the fray, uh, in perfect timing. I mean, perfect timing, uh, uh where, you know, the day after the, Uh, all-star baseball game when there's nothing going on in in all the sports world he very dramatically declares that that you and uh, joe paterno and gary schultz and tim curley had all conspired in this uh, conspiracy of silence to protect uh, the former employee uh, jerry sandusky to avoid bad publicity and uh and You are the only one uh, of those people. In fact, you're one of the very few people even remotely involved in this case that Louis Free even spoke to. What can you tell us about your interview with him almost just literally before the Free Report was released, so close, in fact, that you're barely even mentioned or that interview is barely even mentioned in the report?
1: Well, for months, I had... Uh, been wanting to be interviewed by free. My lawyers communicated that. Uh, they didn't seem to be very eager to speak with me, and we pressed them on it as the time went on. And finally, uh, we were told that I would be the last person interviewed, and that I would be interviewed in late July uh, of 2012. And, and the report would come out at the beginning of the fall semester, uh, which we put it into late August or early September, Uh, and uh, then we got a call a few days before the 4th of July saying if Spanier still wants to be interviewed, it has to be on July 5th, I think was the Friday, or maybe that was the 6th. Uh, and I didn't understand, all of a sudden, what the rush was, uh, and I was doing some consulting uh, for uh, the U.S. government in Washington uh, around the 4th of July, but I, I rearranged my schedule to say, absolutely, we have to do this, and my lawyers and I assembled uh, it was the couple of days before they called and said, or maybe it was the day before, by the way, would would we mind if Louis Free himself came to the interview? And I thought, no, not at all. That would be great. Finally, the guy who's overseeing this can hear the truth. (laughs) And when Louis Free and Greg Paw and Tim Cloud walked into the conference room in Philadelphia where we were doing the interview with, with me and three of my attorneys, uh one of whom actually was taking a a near-verbatim transcript on a laptop. Um, Louis Free acted like he had never seen me before and was very uh, stern and curt. And, uh, you know, just not too long, a couple of years before that, he had autographed a copy of his book to me saying that I was a person of great honor and integrity, And now I felt like he was coming in and treating me like the enemy and started off by saying, we want to make clear you have no privilege here. Everything you say, we can turn over to the attorney general. Uh, Do you have any objection to that? And I said, well, no, (laughs) you know, I'm just going to tell you everything I know. And uh, he outlined several topics he wanted to cover, some of which I thought, were irrelevant I didn't understand why he didn't want to talk about them he ended up not getting to most of them uh, it was as if he had to catch a train for the July fourth weekend I uh, wanted to get out of there they told us it would take a full day and we should keep half of Saturday open as well because we might need more time but after two hours on that Friday morning they said we asked him what We should order in for lunch for them. And they say, oh, we're almost done. (laughs) So we had to begin to cover all the relevant topics. So it was kind of a nasty interrogation. They would not give us ahead of time the documents they were going to put before us. It was confrontational. You know, they would ask us a question, ask me a question uh, as if, I would say no or deny it, and then they would slip a document in front of me. But what about this? Um, but uh, it it was uh, it was tense, and we later, through discovery, saw their write up there from their notes. Uh, they were about seventy five percent overlapped with my attorney's verbatim notes, but but. They didn't match up well. I mean, they, they took a few notes on pads of paper and then they, somebody, you know, would write it up later. Their method, they didn't allow tape recordings. Uh, so, you know, their methods were, were different. And it it was like being interrogated by the FBI, I suppose, more than, you know, let's find out the truth about what happened here. They had already had a final draft. Of their document and only altered it very slightly just to prove that they spoke with me uh, but
0: yeah, so it was it, it was, was a, it was all basically a, a fait accompli they, they they basically it was just they were checking a box I mean they, they did checking
1: a box to be able to say that they had spoken with me but they did not alter their point of view and they they really didn't take into account Anything I said, um, and uh, a couple of the things that I did say, they they misconstrued and, and tried to tried to point people in in the wrong direction. Uh, it, it was it was not a good experience. You know, my attorney said, "Oh, you hit the ball out of the park. You did great." You know, it's. This is really going to be helpful, but but we just didn't know that they had it all written up already, and were prepared to release to have it go to print uh, that Monday and be be publicly released uh, on on Thursday.
0: So, and this is the timing here again is important. It's kind of like, you know, the the firestorm of November of 2011. Uh, you know, but so free, you know. Doesn't speak to McQuarrie, which is amazing. It's unbelievable to me that he didn't speak to Mike McQuarrie. Didn't speak to Jerry Sandusky. Didn't speak to Gary Schultz. Didn't speak to Tim Curley. He didn't speak to any of the accusers. Didn't speak to Alan Myers. I mean, he spoke to nobody. You, who are barely even involved in this story, uh, he speaks to and and basically just checks the box and ignores it. But what it sounds to me like what you're saying backs up what I think is maybe the most clear-cut conspiracy in the entire case, and that is that Jerry Sandusky's trial with no continuances gets rushed through in just enough time for Louis Free to hit that all-star game media void And then his report gets out in just enough time for the NCAA to make their declaration just before football season starts. Now, I'm sorry, um, you know, I'm I'm an anti-conspiracy theorist, but uh, that's a hell of an operation. It's a hell of a lot of coincidence, and you're giving me more evidence that there that there was very a great deal of concern about the timing of this what do you do you do you share my concerns about all this being coordinated
1: well I, I I share your summary of the sequencing yes uh, I had assumed that free had rushed this forward more than anything to have it done by that July Board of Trustees meeting uh, I assumed that was his target because on that Thursday morning he had a press conference, which actually went well beyond what he had in his report in terms of damaging information, and then put the board of trustees in a position of immediately accepting the report, even though they had said—I don't know if it's true—but they had said they hadn't read it because the, the the world was going to hear his report at the same time they did. Um, we now know there was, was more contact with at least some members of the board along the way. Uh, so, yeah, I, I clearly, it, it was rushed, and they probably didn't want to talk to me at all, but, you know, didn't give what I said much credence. Mm-hmm. And, um, and of course, uh, I'll tell you one key thing that's relevant here. I, I have a, to take another call in a moment, but... At that meeting with Louis Free, I said to him, you know, you may, they had told me I would be the last person they would be interviewing. I said, I hope you will delay the release of your report until you get the federal investigation done in relation to the renewal of my security clearance, because I knew that... uh, that the Federal Investigative Services had interviewed many of the relevant people here, most of which, most of whom, Free did not interview. Gary Schultz, Tim Curley, members of the Board of Trustees, Cynthia Baldwin, uh, and so on down the line, um, and. I said, I have not e- I knew that by then that my security clearance had been renewed, but I said, I have not actually seen the report myself, but whatever it says, I will turn it over to you because it it, it will be relevant, and you need to wait uh, until you see that before you make any judgments that pertain to me. I said, I have already requested the report uh under, under the Freedom of Information Act laws, the, the only people entitled to see a security clearance report are the individual who the report's about and the people in the government agencies who have asked to see the security clearance or have authorized it. Um, I hadn't even seen it, but I had ordered it. So I said, well, you know, it's coming. <laughs> right. uh, I will hand it over to you. Sight unseen. You can have it. So it can inform what you're doing. And Free refused to wait for it. And that's a. He, he went ahead without the benefit of that because he didn't want to know what was in that report. And I believe you've spoken to John Snedden, who was intimately involved in spending six months doing this investigation.
0: And what you just said there, Graham, is so incredibly important. Here is Louis Free, former director of the FBI who you would think would have a great understanding and reverence for a federal investigation to renew someone's security clearance, which was at a pretty high level as yours was, and that he would um, be thrilled that um, a federal investigation would include interviews, extensive interviews with you, with Gary Schultz, uh, with Tim Curley, with other people at the university that he was not able to get. and. Not only was he not interested, he wanted to avoid at all costs, uh, having that be part of his report. To me, that is incredibly that is correct.: Incredibly and telling.
1: He knew as much as anyone about security clearances. He knew the work that I was doing in the national security arena, and had I have commendations from him when he was director of the FBI for my cooperation uh, in various matters. Uh, He knew uh, that I had received the FBI Director's Award from Robert Mueller, that I was serving on the National Counterintelligence Working Group as the civilian. Uh, He knew that I that the level of my clearances required a polygraph, and that I had what are called SCI. Clearances above top secret, sensitive compartmented information, in that's very limited to a much smaller cadre of people than top secret clearances go, uh, because of the sensitivity of of what the government Mm. trusts you with and brings you into on on behalf of national security. Uh, it, it, It is. It should be considered shocking that he ignored all of that,
0: Graham. When you uh, did your interview with Louis Free, do you recall um, whether or not he addressed with you the infamous emails and in the exchange between you and and Tim Curley and and Gary Schultz? Uh, I'm not. I, I don't even know if at the time of your interview they had been made public yet. They were made public just briefly before the free report came out, but did they become an issue in your interview with him?
1: Uh, Yes, they did. Um, We had been trying to get a hold of my emails, but the uh, university wouldn't provide them. Uh, They said that the uh, attorney general's office did not want to have them send me anything. uh, And an attorney who was acting on behalf of Penn State kind of whispered (laughs) to my attorney that we would have to sue Penn State to get my emails, which I was entitled to see, uh, and that if a judge ordered it so, then the the attorney general couldn't complain to the university. So we, we did eventually get them, but not before the Free interview. So we had asked Louis Free ahead of time, uh, if you have any documents that you want to talk to us about, please provide them, and he would not do that. So he brought with him a notebook uh, that he put on the table, and he would confront me with each email uh, and wait for my reaction. Uh, In each case, I had to take a moment to read it, Uh, and see what it was, but it was a technique he was using to, you know, hope to surprise me and and spring something on me. Um, So that was the first time I actually saw in print uh, the emails he wanted to talk about. Uh, I had seen snippets of different words that had been leaked to the media, so I, I had some idea where he was you know likely
0: to go those emails are are so incredibly important but for reasons that the news media never understood and i don't think louis free wanted to understand um one of them which i i doubt that you've even thought about i don't maybe you have maybe you haven't you can tell me but i i, I mentioned in the podcast uh how absurd it is that if the prosecution really believed that those emails proved a cover up of child sex abuse, that those emails were not presented in Jerry Sandusky's trial. And that, um, because that would be some of the best evidence they have against Jerry Sandusky. If somehow there was evidence that Penn state was covering up uh, his crimes. But instead what happens is those emails, which the prosecution had, thanks to Gary Schultz, well before Jerry Sandusky's trial, never get used. And the reason why I believe they never get used, I think there's two reasons. One, I think they were concerned that if there were some Penn Staters on the jury, that that might theoretically dissuade them out of loyalty to to convict Jerry, because they might be perceiving that they were convicting Penn State. But also because they were in cahoots with the free people, and... The free people knew they needed something new, something exciting, something groundbreaking. And without those emails, they've got nothing. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering what you make of that analysis from the bigger picture of what's really going on here with those emails.
1: Well, I, I've never really thought about it that way, so I I, uh, I don't know what to say. I I was bothered by the leaks of the words in that one email because they were leaked without any context in an effort to make some of us look bad, but they had no idea of, of what the context might have been. Uh, you know, in that era, uh, Tim Curley had said to me uh, in a, in a conversation, uh, as uh, when we first heard about this, he said, Well, what if we give Jerry this directive and he doesn't feel like he did anything wrong? Uh, and in effect, says, You know, I, I don't really need uh, to follow your instructions about showering uh, with, with young people because I, I don't believe in it. So Tim was worried. What if when I meet with Jerry, he doesn't accept our explanation? And uh, so, in that email, uh, you'll recall, and some of your listeners will recall, that Tim said, "You know, if, if he doesn't if, the, if he doesn't get the message, uh, maybe we should offer counseling." And I said, "You know, if if our message isn't heard, then we could be vulnerable." not reporting it. And what I meant was, well, let's see if he accepts the message. If not, then we can elevate it to a higher level of intervention. Uh, I had not been involved in conversations about DPW or any other entity. I believe Tim and Gary discussed that possibility. But... uh, That was clearly what I meant, and when I used the word humane, it would be humane to ask Jerry to come along if he wished when Tim met with uh, the head of the second mile, who I now know was someone named Jack Rakowitz. I I did not know who he was at the time and had never met him as far as I know.
2: For for
0: the record, the, the line you're referring to is, the only downside for us is if the message isn't heard, and acted upon and then we become vulnerable for not having reported it and yes
1: that you're quoting from that email that uh that laura ditka the prosecutor waved around and bruce beamer before her saying if nothing else this proves that graham spanier is is guilty of a conspiracy to uh to protect a child predator and that's that's just not the proper background at all. That is not what that meant. It, it was a that that that's a, a misuse of one isolated email that clearly uh, is not is not right. But it also, given that we never heard anything about Sandusky uh, abusing a child or uh, doing uh, something sexual with a the child, there couldn't be any context that they wish to put it in
2: well
0: you have just put your finger on the on the primary problem here and it's really is the primary problem of the entire case the prosecution has convinced themselves that the inquiry episode was the rape of a young boy you, you uh and tim and gary are not discussing anything close to the rape of a young boy you're discussing a problem with a former employee who is showering with boys on your property and making people feel uncomfortable. Those are two entirely different things, but they're seeing that email through the prism of what they need to be the reality, because if it's not the reality, their whole case falls apart, right? You see that?
1: Yes, but it, it's not showering with boys. It all, all I heard about is showering with one youth. Right. An age undetermined, I I assumed, uh, a high school student after a workout, after a workout in a locker room facility with the location and the time of day unspecified. And (laughs) at the time when I heard this report from uh, Tim Curley and with Gary Schultz present at, at my conference table, I'm not sure they knew any more details than what I just described. Of
0: course, the biggest problem with the emails, which I say at every opportunity I get, uh, is uh, what were you guys thinking concocting a cover-up of child sex abuse for a former employee using state-owned email addresses and servers? How does that make any sense?
1: (laughs) Right. I
0: mean, it's absurd on its face.
1: Well, and, you know... (laughs) I'm sure a lot of your listeners don't know the the people involved who you've mentioned. I mean, they know of Joe Paterno. They may not have met me or Tim Curley or Gary Schultz. I mean, Tim and Gary are Boy Scouts, and I don't mean that in a disparaging way at all. I mean, they are people who are so honest and, and straightforward, and, you know, they are are family-oriented people who I, I don't think any of us have ever done anything wrong in our lives. We, we follow the rules, we try to make the right decisions, we, we worry about everything. Uh, th- these, these are not people who would in, in cover anything up or engage in a conspiracy or uh, you know, even try and spin something in, in a different way.
0: The other element of these emails that becomes incredibly important is that these emails, while the media never put all this together uh, for for many reasons, uh, is that these emails caused or forced the prosecution to change the date of the McQuarrie episode from March 1st, 2002 to February 9th, 2001. And the reason why they picked February 9th was because they knew now because of these emails that Joe Paterno And Mike McQuarrie met briefly on the morning of February 10th, and they needed as much urgency as possible. Uh, Otherwise, there's no way Mike McQuarrie could have acted as if he saw the rape of a young boy. Therefore, they chose the evening of February 9th, 2001, as the date. As you well know, because I know you've listened to the first episode of this podcast, uh, myself and Malcolm Gladwell and Gary Schultz and Jerry Sandusky, and a whole lot of other people uh, very close to this case are now convinced that the actual date was December 29th, 2000, and that there was a six-week gap from the time that Mike McQuery witnessed whatever he witnessed, and then he went to Joe Paterno on the morning of February 10th, which just happened to be the day likely that he learned that Kenny Jackson had left Penn State to go to the Pittsburgh Steelers and that a wide receiver's coaching job he wanted had opened up. What is your assessment of the case that we have made that the date still, even the second version of the date that the prosecution gave, is still very wrong?
1: Well, I can't say with certainty, but your research and your explanation, uh, I think, is, is quite plausible. I did hear your interview with Gary Schultz, and I certainly agree with what Gary said in that interview, that. There's no way there could have been an event at the Bryce Jordan Center and the other activities occurring on campus. And uh, it it doesn't match up uh, with what we know was actually going on uh, the evening of of February 9th. Uh,
0: so so you don't sound as convinced as Malcolm Gladwell and Gary Schultz. Uh, no,
1: I I I'm saying that that your explanation is very persuasive and uh I I wouldn't dispute it at all. I'm just saying, I, I can't know with certainty. Sure.
0: sure. I got it. I got it. Now. I, and, and, and that's an important distinction to make. Cause I, I mean, when you're someone who speaks in, in very exact terms, which you do and understandably, so there's a difference between something, you know, believing something to likely be true and knowing for sure that it's true. That's a, that's a, you know, that's a, a difficult gap. And I, I appreciate you clarifying that. All right. So let's move along in the timeline. So, um, yeah, well, you know, let me, let me ask one more question about free because we haven't really amplified that enough. So free comes out with his his conclusions and his press conference, which we have described as a masterclass in manipulation. Uh, what is when you when I'm sure you were watching this live? What is Graham Spanier's reaction to to the conclusions that he puts forward on national television uh, with the release of the free report?
1: I was at a meeting in uh, at a corporate board that I was serving on, and I stepped out of the meeting because I knew uh, that free was was going to be on at that time, uh, and I, I went into a, a a room to watch it, and I, I was stunned. I, I was I, I was horrified. I was upset because. The, what he was saying on national television was contrary to what I had just told him uh, days before. Uh, the report uh, that he was describing didn't bear any resemblance to the university I knew or to how we operated intercollegiate athletics at Penn State, and... Uh, we, we had the, the cleanest program in the country. Uh, Mark Emmert had said so earlier. Miles Brand, his predecessor at the NCAA, had said so. We were held out as a model. We were one of only two universities in the country, the other being Stanford, that had never had a major NCAA infraction. We, we followed all the rules precisely he He knew that Tim Curley and Gary Schultz and I, Joe Paterno, we had systems in place of checks and balances in athletics that were unparalleled anywhere in the U.S. I was constantly encouraging my presidential colleagues in the Big Ten to adopt some of our practices because some of them had had allowed things to get a little bit out of hand. Uh we, uh we did things like at the beginning of every year I met, and I did this 17 times, 17 years, met with all of the coaches, uh, all of the assistant coaches, all of the employees in athletics, and uh, somewhat out of character for me, basically threatened them. <laughs> I said, if any of you ever intentionally break a rule, you will be fired. Uh, and they were coaches. They understood talking that way, like something they might say to a, uh, someone on their team, you know, you break any rules, you're off the team. Um, we, I met with all of the incoming athletes every year and talked to them about how we operate and what the culture was like. I brought the district attorney in to join me for those meetings so that he could explain to the athletes, you are in the public eye, but I will not treat you any differently. If you step outside of the law, there will be consequences. Uh, the university, uh, your alumni, the sports fans, the people in the state—they are watching you. We—we had—I could go on and give you an hour just on the checks and balances we had in place in intercollegiate athletics. We had a system where I never got involved in an admissions decision of an athlete. Many universities, in fact, Penn State has a provision where the president can make admissions exceptions. I never did it once. Uh, Our athletes had to meet our admissions requirements, and if there was anybody in a gray area That decision would be evaluated and made by the vice president for uh, educational, uh, for undergraduate education. It was not made in the athletic department. Our coaches and our athletic director could not make admissions decisions. Uh,
0: Graham, do you believe that Louis Free, as has been alleged by Al Lord and Bob Capretto and, and other members of the board of trustees of Penn State or former members of the board, simply gave the the board that that got rid of you and joe paterno what what they wanted what they needed in order to justify those actions do you believe that was the ultimate motivation for what happened here
1: well i think that had to be a part of it because uh the board was getting criticized so severely uh not so much for my situation i was maybe 10 percent of it 90 percent of of the public visibility was for their firing of Joe Paterno and uh, they had to in the end justify that that was a proper decision so I think Louis Free was trying to help his client out by saying oh yeah there were cultural issues there were problems in athletics the trustees of the University knew that that couldn't be right because you had on that board of trustees several people who were former athletes at Penn State. They were athletes on Joe Paterno's teams. Mm. We gave them regular reports on the status of athletics. They had the opportunity at any time to question me or the director of athletics. Uh, they knew that we operated uh, with with the utmost care in, in how we we did athletics. But the university and the, the, the new president adopted a line that said, you know, we've got to fix these problems at, at the university and, and we're, we're going to get on top of this. Uh, it, it was disconcerting for me to hear that because they all knew, virtually all of the trustees knew how we did it. mm mm-hmm.
0: But that wasn't a narrative that fit their self-interest anymore. I mean, this is all about, you know.
1: At that point in time, there was a different narrative that had evolved, and they, they never pushed back on it. They didn't stick up for uh, the culture uh, of athletics at, at Penn State that, that operated not only efficiently but with, uh, you know, modest staff levels. We, we didn't need a lot of compliance people because our compliance director, uh, Mr. Bove, uh, (laughs) uh, was on top of it. Uh, I mean, we were so careful. i just give you one anecdote. We were so careful that I knew I could never uh, provide any special favor to an athlete in any context. And I remember once I was driving back to the president's residence in a blinding rain, rainstorm. And I saw a member of the woman's volleyball team uh, being drenched at a uh, stoplight, uh, walking home. And I called the compliance <laughs> officer and I said, am I permitted to give her a ride home in this rainstorm? And he said, well, just to be safe, don't do it. Oh. And I left her there. Oh. I, I, oh. oh, my God. Right. If there was ever a gray area and I called to ask, uh, and I did ask occasionally because I never wanted to step over the line, the answer was usually no. Just to be safe, don't do that. <laughs> right.
0: I got it. Wow. All right. Okay. So. Um, I want to talk about the media for a moment and you actually have a a very strong background in in media yourself and there and there are two episodes that occurred sometime in this time period involving the media that I thought were uh, they were directly involved with you and which were emblematic of the larger reality of this case. Uh, The first deals with Josh Elliott. Josh Elliott, who I believe at the time was with ABC, he's been on every different network and been let go or left all of them at this point. At, at this time period, he was a rising star. Today, I don't even think he's employed. But um, And I don't know uh, where this is still available to be seen because I remember it being on a very odd link. But I have to say, in my entire life, and I've seen a lot of media malpractice, I have never seen anything Close to what happened when Josh Elliott interviewed you uh, about this case, and, and actually, to call it an interview is an insult to the to the word interview. Uh, because yes.
1: well, it it, it was uh, absolutely the worst media experience I've had in my life. Um, I felt okay. I have nothing to hide. I I did not. I just didn't believe until I was uh, charged that I would ever be charged because I thought how I made the mistake of thinking that Frank Fina and the other prosecutors knew that I was completely innocent and they were just uh, playing some sort of a of a game. Mm-hmm. I, I I thought they can't possibly know. They must know. <laughs> that I did nothing wrong, and they can't possibly think that I did. So I never expected to be charged. I I didn't have anything to hide, and I wanted to be public at some level of explaining what I knew and standing up for Penn State uh, and and my colleagues and Joe Paterno and athletics at Penn State. So I I did agree to that interview. There were a lot of people asking for interviews, and... uh, They said, well, Josh Elliott will be great because he had done work for ESPN, but now he was on Good Morning America, and he'd be the ideal person to do it. And they said that they would be doing a half an hour uh, from uh, a hotel in uh, Philadelphia, and they'd set up a, a whole crew there and a whole team, and they had a satellite truck, and they were sending it back live. Well, that half an hour turned out actually to be two full hours, and it was very painful because, Josh Elliott, it was an attack, uh, and some of my colleagues uh, who I'd worked with in the media were actually watching the live feed from ABC headquarters in New York, and, you know, when it was over, I talked to them, and they said, you handled it well, and, and they couldn't believe what, josh Elliott was was doing but it was an outright attack and uh he was getting very flustered because he was trying to get me to admit something anything (laughs) he was trying to get me to admit things that that were not correct and i kept answering his questions the same way consistently saying you've asked me that before but i'm Telling you again, this is the answer. And I could see him getting very flustered. Uh, and he was sweating now, uh, even though beforehand they said, uh, Josh Elliott will have makeup, but you won't. <laughs> I said, fine. Um, and I had to ask him halfway through the interview, Do you want to take a break? Because I can see that you are under some great stress here. <laughs> and he said, He did. And then his producers handed him another set of questions, and he came out of that set of questions uh, with a new set of questions saying, I'm going to read you testimony of victims from Jerry Sandusky's trial. And I said, well, I can't comment on that because I wasn't at his trial. I never heard any of that before. And I knew that it would never pass the the ABC censors to get on the air, and it, it never did because... He was using some, you know, really outlandish language. Well, they aired a few snippets on uh, Nightline, Good, Lo- Good Morning America, and, and immediately that evening on the ABC Evening News. Um, well, then the uh, uh, Frank Fina su- subpoenaed the entire interview, one of the tape, and ABC. Uh, instead of responding to the interview, he said, "We're just going to put the whole two hours up online for anybody to see." which yeah. was fine because the people who saw the whole two hours rather than the snippets that they had used felt it was a it was a good interview. I came across, I think, as honest, and I was being honest
0: that that, um, that now that you refresh my recollection, that's why I remember seeing the whole thing on what I remember being a kind of an odd link but you're actually being too kind to josh elliott graham um when, when he st- starts reading to you testimony from jerry sandusky's trial he doesn't just do it uh you know in in a short snippet i my recollection is he continued to read victim number nine's horrendous grotesque uh, testimony on on a continual basis in, in, repeating himself Simply to see if he could get you to react
1: inappropriately. I mean, it was—it was there were that's, no, right? That's correct. It, it was a dramatic reading uh, of that—that that he was hoping I would somehow react to. Uh, it, he, what he was driving at it was very clear. Was to say, uh, Doctor Spanier, you are trained as a marriage and family therapist. You. Your field is children, youth, and families, and you are you enabled Jerry Sandusky. So will you will you now take responsibility right. for Jerry Sandusky's acts? Right. It's on. He's trying to say to me, this is on you. Mm. <laughs> More than right. Will you Will you acknowledge that? And right. I'm saying,
0: no. No, <laughs> it was it was unbelievable. I. I, I I've never seen anything like it before or since, and it was emblematic of the horrendous media coverage of this case. It was not an an anomaly. Now, another episode involving you, which I think might even be more significant because of of her uh, role in all this, occurs, you're still not indicted, but you get an email from Sarah Gannam. The Sarah Saraganam, who broke this story originally, who, who wins the Pulitzer Prize for her reporting on this case. You get an email from her informing you that you are about to be indicted, uh, which yes. which which turned out not to be accurate, um, right. at least not at that time period. Do, do you remember what the? Do you remember exactly what the email said, by any chance?
1: Yeah, yeah, I I actually uh, can quote from it. Uh, (laughs) It cost me a week of sleep, I must say. It was uh, an email sent on May 23rd of 2012 saying, quote, I just heard that the AG's office is planning to file a perjury charge against you before the Jerry Sandusky trial begins June 5th, wondering if you have been contacted or if you want to comment. Uh, a similar email came a week or so later from Ann Danahy at the Center Daily Times uh, saying that she learned I was being indicted right after the Sandusky trial. And, of course, both of them were, were wrong, but they must have gotten a leak of some sort. And I, I do know now, what I didn't know then, was that, that Louis Free and uh, his people and uh, Frank Fina... They were, uh, they were behind the scenes talking about how they wanted to team up effectively to, to come after me. They were also saying that they look forward to the day when Cynthia Baldwin would be put behind bars. And I, I know now from Freeze interviews with certain employees at Penn State that, that they were threatened that they would lose their job or possibly be Uh, indicted if they didn't cooperate, meaning, you know, saying what the interrogators wanted them to say.
0: Graham, it's my theory, as I think you know, that Sarah Gannon was used by the prosecution in this case to create a situation where there would be momentum for the case against Jerry Sandusky and that they could effectively put an advertisement in the newspaper looking for more accusers of Jerry Sandusky and that she was leaked the grand jury information directly, uh, for that purpose. Uh, is it a fair assessment to interpret, uh, you getting an email from Sarah Gannam incorrectly informing you that you're about to be indicted based upon attorney general sources that, uh, that that would go to back up my original theory.
1: Yes. I, I think, uh, Clearly, there were were leaks uh, coming possibly from prosecutors. Uh, Others have speculated they might have come from the governor's office or uh, possibly from within the university. I don't think that's as likely. Um, And it wasn't just Sarah Gannon getting leaks. There were other reporters also. She was probably the principal recipient of them. Uh, Michael Isikoff, I think, along the way heard some things that, you know, got some leaks. He had sources, um, and and I know at the time, you know, there, there were many of these reporters are people who I had relationships with because they had interviewed me countless times, uh, and you know they were good, honest brokers. They were good reporters, and. I remember one reporter who I really trusted took me into his confidence and told me that there were things going on along the lines of what you've just described. All
0: right. And we only have a few minutes left, uh, and you've been so gracious with your time, but I have to get to uh, your eventual trial. I, I've been, you know, Eventually, you are indicted. I don't know if you remember this, by the way, but... Uh, I was the one that read you your indictment. Uh, you were in Iowa at the time, uh, and uh, you you actually, I believe, called me after I had contacted you. Uh, do you I'm, I'm curious. Do you remember that?
1: You know, I don't remember the conversation. I, I was actually at the funeral of my father-in-law, and so I was a little fuzzy. <laughs> right. I understood. Emotional.
0: Understood. But and it's not important. I, I was just curious. So
1: I, I do remember— Uh, being informed. uh, And I think actually, I think it might have been Michael Isakoff that also perhaps called and said, uh, on the Today Show tomorrow, we will be reporting that you're going to be indicted at noon that day, something like that. And I, I called my attorney and said, have you heard anything like this? I haven't. But We know now they didn't want to tell my lawyers. They wanted to spring it on us. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, at one level it it came as a shock. By then we, we knew that they were rushing people into the grand jury trying to get somebody to say something negative that they could use to bring an indictment, and they only had... I think three day three business days left mm-hmm. before the Tuesday election of a new attorney general and and they were gonna all gonna be out um, right. uh you know it looked like uh Kathleen Kane was going to win the election, and she had run in part on a platform of getting the truth out about this,
2: yeah.
1: so my that worked lawyers out
0: well had, for her <laughs> yeah right.
1: My lawyers had told me uh right. it, come Tuesday. You're in the clear. Oh, gosh. Wow. They have have no evidence. There's nothing against you. If we make it till Tuesday, we're fine. And we didn't make it till Tuesday because they they rushed out the indictment. The only way they could do that was by putting Cynthia Baldwin on the stand for two hours in what appears to be a well-rehearsed testimony with Frank Fina where – she said a vast number of things that were not true. so uh, it was an incredible disappointment to me that she would do that that a former judge would on the witness stand say the things she said uh, but she we know now that they had uh, threatened criminal charges against her, obstruction of justice and They had uh, done what was called a proffer agreement, saying that if you, basically, if you testify before the grand jury uh, and say what we want you to say about Grand Spanier, we will not charge you criminally for anything that you Mm -hmm. have said.
0: Well, the circumstances alone of your indictment just before a new attorney general gets elected, in a rational world, if the news media was doing their job, would have been laughed out of town. But because of the nature of this case, nothing normal uh, happened or nothing occurred like it should have. And so eventually you do go to trial. And uh, I'm sure you have to remember the conversation that you and I had just before your trial where I doubt that uh, certainly as an adult or maybe every time in your life you've ever been cursed out uh, more uh, blatantly or perhaps inappropriately by somebody than you were by me uh, because it, it was clear to me, and although I did not know the full proportions of this at the time, that uh, your defense team uh, was going to take a very passive view of how to handle your trial specifically with regard to to how to and whether or not to enter into evidence the federal investigation done by John Snedden, which we've already referred to, uh, which uh, extended your uh, federal security clearance. By the way, I'm I, again mostly out of curiosity. Do you remember the conversation where I I cursed you out?
1: I, I remember that you did do that at one point. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and yet uh, and I remember you- that. Uh, that you were un- unpleasant on an occasion or two. And I understood where you were coming from. I mean, I, I, I've always known that, um, despite your occasional volatility, that you have as much information about all of this as anyone and care about it as much as anyone and are really dedicated to getting the truth out. So I, I, I've always understood that and and appreciated it. Um, and you know, in in retrospect, uh, and, and I think I heard you say this in another interview, with, uh, that um, that I, I should have taken the stand in my own defense at my trial, and that is probably the one regret that I have in all of this because. Uh, we knew we knew it would be very hard to get a fair trial. Uh, there had been very good research done by jury consultants saying there was no possibility of getting a fair trial in Dauphin County. I think that mm-hmm. Gary Schultz and Tim Curley knew that. I felt, and I believe that uh, I had to go to trial because there is no circumstance; it's just not in my composition. I would never plead guilty to something I'm not guilty of. I I just would not do that. I would rather go to jail uh, for a crime I didn't commit than to act like I did commit a crime when I hadn't. So
0: So then why no defense then? Then then why didn't you put on a defense then, Graham? Why was there no defense?
1: Because. The prosecution had 13 witnesses that presented no evidence against me. They were basically retrying Jerry Sandusky, not me. Uh, The only two people who had any direct contact with me or knowledge of me were Tim Curley and Gary Schultz. And they said, no, we never told them that. So the, the lawyers made a judgment. The night before I was going to testify, uh, I consulted separately with five of the lawyers who, over the years, had represented me. And all five of them had, at one time or another, said, absolutely, you you will testify. We know you want to. We know you will. You can handle it. And at that point, they said, there's been no evidence presented, so no, you Mm -hmm. shouldn't. And I talked to my wife about it, and she said no, so it was the vote was 6 to 1 mm-hmm. and at the same time they did not bring forward other witnesses that we had lined up you mentioned John Stedden he was one there were people from who I'd worked with in the national security community who who knew about my honesty and integrity and my trustworthiness and were prepared to talk about mm-hmm. What they knew and well, to vouch well, for me and right. uh, to say that it, it's not possible. So, I mean, there were. So,
0: Graham, let me. In our, we're running out of time because you have to go. So, I, I gotta, I gotta ask this. So, <laughs> you know, I attended your trial. You said you weren't surprised I showed up, despite our our uh, horrendous phone conversation just before your trial. And um, I told Anthony Lebrano, Franco Harris, the Washington Post reporter that attended that you were getting convicted. Uh, um, And I didn't get, you know, I'm not, I don't have a law degree. Uh, I don't, I'm, you know, I, I, you know, I actually think that you were uh, poorly served by having top notch legal counsel because the top notch legal counsel thought this was a normal trial. They thought The facts mattered. They thought the law mattered. And me living in the real world and not in this, uh, you know, ivory tower utopia uh, that that, uh, your lawyers were living in, they didn't understand the reality of the situation. And Anthony Lebrano mocked me for saying you were going to get convicted. Franco thought I was wrong. Uh, uh, I don't know what the Washington Post reporter thought, but I left positive you were going to get convicted. How did I know that and not your lawyers?
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, you said as, as you said, uh, my lawyers thought that facts and evidence is, is what it, what it's all about, and uh, uh, we knew there had been politics. We knew that that the jury pool had been contaminated by biased media reports. We un- we understood all that, and uh, you know I believe they they did their best. I'm not critical at all of my attorneys uh we we felt that we got the second best outcome out of all we, we were found not guilty on all of the serious charges and it was reduced to one misdemeanor uh and we knew that there was an issue of the statute of limitations. The jury was given instructions for a law that didn't exist on the books at the time. Uh, There was the ex post facto constitutional matter that they charged me with a crime that didn't exist on the books. Uh, They only changed that in their filings afterwards. They had argued that it didn't matter because it was a continuing crime, but I was found not guilty on that. Indeed, it was thrown out in federal court, but... uh, we ended up in in uh, with the misdemeanor being reinstated by a federal appellate court in a bizarre opinion that never made any sense to any attorney who uh, has has read it. So Graham, no one's if,
0: arguing. Your your lawyers were right; they were right on the law and they were right on the facts, but they were not right in in the reality of the situation. And I guess what, what I if well, I'll I, tell you
1: one other thing, just. I'll tell you who else thought that I would be found not guilty on all counts, the prosecutors, because I was offered a plea bargain five times. The fourth time was during the trial. They said, if you'll plead guilty to this same misdemeanor, this low-level misdemeanor, uh, we drop everything else. The fifth time they offered me the plea bargain was while the jury was out deliberating. They said, "We'll just end the whole thing right now if you'll just agree to this one misdemeanor." My lawyers, because of mm-hmm. you know their ethics, <laughs> are they were required to present it to me every single time. They said mm-hmm. we, we are obligated to tell you that you've been presented this plea bargain after a while they said we know what you're going to say but we have to we mm. have to tell you that it's just been offered to you again and i said no
0: well that's that's good information to have but i would just add one last thing in our final moments here before we lose you and and that is that this was more than just i realized the paramount issue was whether or not you were going to lose your freedom. And I get and respect that as much as anybody on the planet. But the only way that the truth was ever going to get out about this case was in a court of law. And the only way it was going to happen was with top-notch legal counsel and resources and somebody with credibility behind it. You were the last shot, Graham, for the truth of this matter to ever be presented in court. And there was no defense put on. And, I, you know, as you know, you and I didn't speak for years after that, and it is because I've always believed that that was the last gasp of hope for the tr- anything resembling the truth of this case ever being told in a form that would matter. You're not going to agree with that, but do you understand why I feel that?
1: Well, way? no, actually, I I agree with how you just put it. it, it uh, in retrospect, that may have been the last opportunity and uh, if I had a do over, I would take the stand and take whatever beating Laura Ditko was going to dish out to me because I would only have told the truth. And uh, I I don't I think in the end it's it's the, the truth that matters. And we had we've had a couple of jurors who've come forward and you know one of them said if we just would have heard Spaniard say Uh, what what the truth was, then I wouldn't have gone along with the misdemeanor. And, of course, the jury foreman has twice come out publicly saying, uh, we blew it, we made a terrible mistake, Spanier is not guilty, this shouldn't have happened, and he should not go to jail.
0: Last question for you, Graham. Um, You know, the 10th anniversary is about to come up. I know you've done an interview with ESPN Uh, and uh, John Barr uh, that you felt good about. I know that you have uh, at least written a book of some sort that eventually uh, you hope to to publish. Uh, Obviously, this podcast has come out. Uh, I I guess it's a two-part question. Is there anything in the podcast that you have heard so far that you want to take issue with, or do you think we got wrong? Because I'd love to hear it. And two, do you have any optimism at all that this media narrative can be... It can be turned around even just a little bit. Is there any hope at all in the future of the truth ever being properly heard?
1: Well, I, I don't know. I I think in the minds of some people, they, they have their mind made up, uh, even if it's even if the facts aren't right. So there, we're not going to convince some people. But you know. There are there are thousands of people who have written me and who've been very supportive and, and who who understand I did nothing wrong. Others may never be convinced and maybe if there's some folks in the middle they can be convinced by what comes out, by what you've put out, by the book I'll I'll eventually publish. Uh I, I don't know. I, I it's been very discouraging, so as it has been to you, I think. And so I, I don't have my hopes up high, but I know I can hold my head up high because I've acted honorably. And I I hope in due course enough people will understand that, that I I can, you know, have my, my reputation and, and, and keep my dignity.
0: Graham of all the people I've met in this entire horrendous situation, You are uh, by far the greatest gentleman. I am so glad that uh, we have come back into communication after our uh, several-year hiatus. You are a a man of incredible intellect and character. I'm so sorry this happened to you. So sorry. And and I thank you so much for your time, and I hope we'll keep in touch.
1: Well, thank you. I I wish you well with with the work that you're doing and other projects you'll take on in the future. And uh, thank you for, for those comments.
0: Take care, Graham. Thanks so much.